You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 599. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 21st of December, 2023. In today's episode, The NTSB reports on what led a JetBlue crew to pitch up prematurely during takeoff in Colorado, causing a tail strike. And three senators asked the FAA to require commercial flights to carry EpiPens. Also ahead, more news and your feedback. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger and Flight 599 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. And joining us today from her lakeside studio in South... Kagalecki, Kagalecki. Dr. Skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing, jumper dumper, and Iron Man, Dr. Steph. Hey, not like I needed more things for you to add to my intro there, so you can feel free to mix and match, pick and choose, and, and definitely add never tardy, Dr. Steph. Never Steph. tardy. Never tardy. And always, right on time. always, always on the show, every Punctual. single week. Yes. Glad <laughs> Most to be of here. the time. Looking forward to it. <laughs> All right, we are too, and also joining us from his studio in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A33340, captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Hi, everybody. Hi, uh, Jeff and Steph. Uh, I've been to a funeral today. And the way this show's going, the next one's going to be mine. <laughs> All of ours, I think. The APG show, it's funeral. And also joining us from his studio in the air capital, low and slow pilot, AMP mechanical, airplane enthusiast, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry, it's Nick Camacho. Hey guys, glad to uh, be back. Looking forward to it. And also, finally, from a place to stand, a place to grow, Ontario, Toronto. Ontario, Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, it's Liz Piper. Hello, everybody. Happy winter solstice to everyone in the Northern Hemisphere. Well played. Longer days ahead. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yay. Yes. Sorry right. if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. Tough luck. Have a good <laughs> show, you guys. Thanks, Liz.
stand by for news. Now we're going to start off with uh, something from the Aviation Herald, avherald.com. It's a final report. It involves a JetBlue Airbus A320-200 registration November 760 Juliet Bravo performing flight 1748 from Hayden, Colorado to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. They were departing Hayden's runway 10 at 1157 local time when the aircraft's tail contacted the runway surface. The aircraft continued a normal departure and climbed to flight level 310. When you want me to play Den- the video now? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, when Denver Center forwarded a message to the crew stating they had a tail strike on the departure runway, the crew subsequently decided to divert to Denver, Colorado, where the aircraft landed on runway 35 right without further incident about 45 minutes after departure from Hayden. No injuries. The aircraft sustained substantial damage, however. Um, let's see. The NTSB investigation ensued. And the, uh, let's see, where is the the meat here? Where's the beef? Um, oh, that was a, another episode, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> let's see. The On the 13th of December, 2023, the NTSB released their final report and investigation docket, including the probable causes of the accident where the captain's rotation of the airplane pitch before the rotation speed on takeoff due to his surprise about encountering head-on landing traffic, which landed in an exceedance of the airplane's pitch limit, which resulted in an exceedance of the airplane's pitch limit and a subsequent tail strike. Contributing to the accident was the flight crew's expectation bias that the incoming aircraft was landing on the same runway as they were departing from and the conflicting traffic's non-standard use of phraseology when making position calls on the common traffic advisory frequency. So the NTSB analyzed JetBlue Airways Flight 1748 incurred a tail strike uh, taking off from uh, Yampa Valley, uh, Hayden. Um, let's see, about 11.48 Mountain Standard Time, JetFlu 1748 flight crew announced on the common traffic advisory frequency, CTAF, that they were leaving the ramp area to taxi to runway 10, or 10, for departure. A few seconds later, a Beechcraft B-300 King Air, November 350 Juliet, on an instrument flight rules flight plan reported on the local CTAF that they were about nine miles out for 10, coming in from the east, descending out of 17,000 feet. Uh, the Unicom operator responded to November 350 Juliet, stating that there were multiple aircraft inbound and winds were calm and provided the altimeter setting. After this exchange, the JetBlue crew began discussing the active runway and the multiple inbound planes using runway 10. Two minutes later, the JetBlue flight crew contacted Denver uh, ARTCC, uh, Denver Center, and reported that they were at Hayden, preparing for engine start, would be ready for departure in about six or seven minutes. The Denver controller asked the flight crew if they were planning on departing from runway 10, to which the crew concurred, and the Denver Center controller instructed them to contact him when they were ready for departure. About the time the JetBlue flight crew was starting their second engine and conducting engine checks, the King Air flight crew was contacting Denver Center to cancel their IFR flight plan because they had visually acquired Hayden and intended to land on runway 28. Okay, so initially they said they were going to come into 1-0, but then they changed their mind, their visual, they're going to use 2-8. The Denver Center controller acknowledged the IFR cancellation, instructed them to squawk 1200, 
and approved a radio frequency change. The King Air's flight crew subsequently announced on CTAF uh, that they were going to go ahead and land 2-8, and we're straight in 2-8 right now. About 10 seconds later, the JetBlue flight crew announced on CTAF they were leaving the ramp area and were taxiing to runway 10 for departure. Hayden Unicom reported that multiple airplanes were inbound and the winds were calm. While the JetBlue flight crew was performing an after-start checklist, the King Air announced on CTAF they were on a 12-mile final, 2-8, straight in. After 45 seconds, the King Air asked on CTAF if anyone was about to depart from runway 10, and the JetBlue flight crew replied that they intended to hold on the taxiway near the end of runway 10 and wait for a clearance from Denver Center. The King Air replied they were on a 10-mile 2-8 straight in. The JetBlue flight crew said, all right, copy, and that they would keep an eye out for them. About 11.55, the JetBlue flight crew announced or contacted Denver Center and reported they were ready for departure on runway 10 at Hayden. The Denver Center controller cleared them to Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport as filed with a two-minute clearance void time. Flight crew read back the clearance, including the two-minute void time restriction. Uh, according to the AIM, the Aeronautical Information Manual, a pilot may receive a clearance when operating from an airport without a control tower, which contains a restriction for the clearance to be void if not airborne by a specific time. A pilot who does not depart before the clearance void time must advise air traffic control as soon as possible of their intentions. Um, about a minute later, the JetBlue flight crew announced on CTAF that they had received their clearance would depart on runway 10 within five seconds. The King Air's flight crew reported they had a uh, had a King Air on final 2-8 and that they had been calling. JetBlue's flight crew replied on CTAF that they thought the King Air was eight or nine miles out, to which the King Air replied they were four miles out, even less than that. The JetBlue first officer, pilot monitoring, stated that they looked for the airplane both visually and on their onboard traffic alert and collision avoidance system and did not see any traffic. JetBlue flight crew announced or acknowledged the King Air, looked for traffic approaching runway 10, and announced on CTAF that they were beginning their takeoff from runway 10 at Hayden. The King Air's flight crew replied that they were on short final, and I hope you don't hit us. <laughs> According to ADSB data, when JetBlue taxied on runway 10, the King Air was on a reciprocal course 4.91 nautical miles from JetBlue. JetBlue's uh, crew increased thrust for takeoff about 11.57, about 11 seconds later, just prior to the 80 knots callout, the pilot monitoring asked the pilot flying if the King Air was on runway 28. The captain uh, pilot flying asked, is he? To which the PM said, yes, he's on 28. Do you see him? To which the pilot flying said, no. After the event, the JetBlue first officer explained that he observed traffic directly ahead on the TCAS during takeoff run and pointed it out on the display to the captain. About 20 seconds after JetBlue started their takeoff on runway 10, the flight crew of the King Air asked JetBlue if they were going to do a quick turnout, to which they replied, yes, sir. Concurrent to this conversation, JetBlue's captain pitched the airplane up 24 knots before ah. rotation speed to avoid the approaching King Air and subsequently struck the tail of the airplane on the runway surface. He began a climbing right turn away from the traffic indicated on the TCAS. JetBlue's captain and first officer both stated they had never visually acquired the approaching King Air. According to ADSB data, when JetBlue began its right turn after departure from runway 10, the King Air was on a reciprocal course with 2.27 nautical miles of separation between the converging airplanes. Based on FDR data, the tail strike occurred about 11.57. The crew continued their departure procedures. 
discussed that they had experienced a tail strike, initially deciding to continue the flight to Fort Lauderdale. At 12.03, they asked the flight attendants what they felt in the back of the airplane, to which the flight attendants stated they felt a tail strike. At this time, the aircraft was about 16,000 feet in altitude. Within two minutes of getting the flight attendant feedback, about 20,000 feet, they contacted the airline's maintenance controller for guidance. Uh, although the aircraft had not enunciated any warnings regarding a pressurization issue. Okay, so, so far it looked like it was pressurizing normally. About five minutes later, when climbing through 26,000 feet, the maintenance controller recommended they land immediately so the airplane could be inspected for damage. They leveled the aircraft at flight level 310 and decided to divert to Denver, where they made a safe landing. Um, now, they, they go on, on in this report. I'll, I'll stop here, and we can discuss it a little bit, uh, about... Um, what they faulted the King Air November 350 Juliet, uh, their communications on CTAF, because the uh, FAA Advisory Circular 90-66B describes the self-announced procedure that pilots use at uncontrolled airports. Uh, you, you state your call sign, position, altitude, and intended activity on the designated uh, common traffic advisory frequency. In this event, um, 350 Juliet made several calls, including their original intent to land on runway 10 and then their decision to switch to runway 28. However, the composition of these calls had the potential to be clearer. Another, so basically, they, they said 28 instead of runway 28 or 10 instead of runway 10. Uh, I don't think that's a big, to me, that doesn't seem to be I a big factor. I think that's going to be understood in that environment, but could it that's be That's what I think too. Yes, but it was. Probably universally understood what they so, were saying. So what? So what's your take here, Steph? What What happened? Was the JetBlue crew like, um, kind of just in their head, thinking that uh, the the King Air was going to be landing on the same runway they're using for takeoff? No, I think they actually understood. I mean, from what I what you just read there, that they uh, the King Air was going to be landing on two eight because they discussed that. I, they didn't say that. No, when when the when the King Air first. Sign no, when their, they first called in, they said yeah. one zero, but and I don't they think, talked about that. But, but then, they did. Well, you're right. They did acknowledge. They, they went all right. But I don't think mentally they acknowledged it. Well, so I was going back to what they said about. Um, I think they were very surprised when all of a sudden they realized the guys eight or nine miles eight. out, four miles mm -hmm. less than that. Um, Oh yeah, it does say look for traffic approaching runway ten or one zero. Yeah, um, when they were doing their scan for traffic and uh, TCAS yeah. and everything else, I think in their heads they still, even though they acknowledge what the King Air said, I think that in their heads they're still thinking they're coming in behind us. So either way, if you've got someone on a four mile final for the runway you're going to be departing, um, King Airs have a fairly high approach speed. I mean, they're not you know a one fifty out there doing seventy knots on final. Um, they're going to be a bit faster than that. So they're going to cover ground pretty quickly. If you don't have a visual on them, um, I, I don't know that I would be going anywhere, even with that um, clearance void time of two That's minutes. That's a major factor, I think. They were under yeah, that, pre I think they, that time they pressure. They felt the pressure of the time to, to depart. Um, they didn't see them on TCAS, so they didn't really know where they were. Um, but man, that's just not the time to, to rush. I mean, this stuff, this kind of stuff happens to me all the time at the airport that I fly at. Um, it's sometimes it's hard to see um, ADSB uh, info for me if I'm on the ground. Um, the stratus that I have, the receiver, doesn't pick up as well unless I'm in the air. It doesn't receive the towers as well sometimes. Um, and 
you know, the environment that I fly in, it's a lot of general aviation pilots and most of them are very good about making the correct call outs and self-announcing, self-reporting. Um, but there's a lot of folks out there too, who've spent a lot of time flying in the country and not doing a lot of talking on the radio, or maybe not actually knowing which runway they're going to be landing on or getting the runway numbers wrong. Um, if someone's in the environment and I haven't figured out exactly where they are, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. Um, and I've had the, the, um, the opposite happen too, the reverse, um, actually just not this past weekend, but the weekend before, um, switched over to CTAF after, um, um, being with Charlotte center, um, or Charlotte, uh, approach. And then, um, usually, um, they get pretty busy, but a lot of times if there's traffic in the area, they'll say, Hey, there's one, you know, appears to be inbound to the South or, you know, in the vicinity. Um, nothing about that. And was not on, not on my, um, ADSB until I got much closer to them. And I have no idea why that happens sometimes, but you know, it's a tool, it's not perfect. Um, but definitely they were on short final for um, a converging runway and had visual. And then just in the course of setting up and maneuvering, no longer had visual on them. It's easy enough just to make a decision to you know, come back around and set up for another approach to landing, give mm -hmm. them all the time and space they need. They were there first. Gotcha. Um, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, and, oh, I was gonna say, and in that case, you know, kind of similar thing where announcements were being made on CTAF, but maybe weren't very clear, you know, and didn't include all the information, didn't include distance sometimes, didn't include altitude, didn't include the intention that they just intended to do, um, to go missed. They weren't actually landing full stop. So. And you're talking about the... No, I'm talking about the, the um, that situation that I had a couple of weeks ago. Ah, gotcha. Ago. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, but same thing, you know, there was some missing information. If you don't have the full picture, you can't figure it out. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, the more me, it's easy enough just The more information that you back. can convey in your communications, the better. I mean, you don't want to go on and do a whole dissertation uh, because, you know, then you clog the frequency up. But, um, I mean, that's just, I don't know, um, Camacho... What did you think of the uh, CTAF com uh, of the uh, of the King Air? I mean, I, I didn't I mean, think it was I, out. I I agree that by the letter of the law, uh, they were not saying every specific word that they could have been saying. But I mean, it seems like there is plenty clear communication. You know, I like to me that's the biggest thing is like being aware that there's somebody else out there. Like the FAA publishes all this information on uncontrolled airports. Um, very little of it is regulatory, right? Like the direction of the pattern is regulatory, but they say you should enter a pattern this way. And if you don't enter it that way, you should enter it this way. But the reality is you can kind of enter a pattern anywhere. Um, not always a good idea, but also can't be, uh, held accountable to a regulation. I don't think for that, but you know, it, if everyone's talking and, um, talking succinctly and effectively, it, it seems like it always works pretty well. Uh, and this is another case too, where you could always ask for repetition, you know, you could say, 
confirm your landing runway one zero. Oh, you're landing two eight. Okay, that's a different story. You know, you should be able to have that kind of communication back and forth. Yeah. So when I when I was looking at this, I thought, uh, you know, Jeff was thinking that they thought the guy was landing the other way. I guess what I took from these comments is uh, maybe they construed the King Air when he was saying landing ten. They were they were thinking he was landing he, he was ten miles out from landing rather than landing on runway ten. So that's why they came back a minute later and said, "Oh, we thought you were eight or nine miles out because you were ten miles out at this point." To me, you know, as a as a person who's operated a lot in uncontrolled environments, uh, as a single pilot, it's uh, it makes me wonder how that could happen in a uh, multi-pilot crew uh you know when you basically got an extra person in there to either check the guy who's running the show or manage the communications or however they balance it you know to me it's one of those things where it seems like there were assumptions made without verifying and i do think that the um clearance void time was definitely an external pressure in this case where they were just ready to go and wanted to get off the ground and oh that yeah there was a king air out there but they're like 10 miles out so uh, we don't even see them on tcas yet so let's just go ahead and go without verifying that information even though they're called the king air is calling back saying um are you departing one zero do you see us are you going to make good you know the king air crew were in my opinion were fully aware of what was happening yes. and what was potentially going to happen and the potential misunderstanding that the JetBlue crew had. Uh, they maybe could have done something like, hey, guys, you know, we're we're landing to a opposite direction of one zero. You know, like yeah. they again, that doesn't mean that the blame should be put on them. Obviously the blame goes on the on the JetBlue crew for having that expectation bias. But I, and uh, Captain Nick, I think you'll uh, agree with me uh, as far as crew uh, airline crew operations are concerned. You're pushing back within six minutes of the time that you're starting your takeoff roll, that is, that is darn quick. That's there are fast. a lot of things happening on the pushback yep. um, or maybe a little bit more than that, more, more like 12 minutes or something like, but it, it was quick. It was like, we're pushing back, we're starting engines, we're coordinating with Denver center to get our clearance, uh, making the PA to the flight attendants to prepare the cabin for takeoff, waiting for their call. We're running checks for uh, after start uh, taxi check before takeoff checklist radios blaring a lot of people talking a lot of airplanes coming in i think that they just it never i think they sat in their head that everybody's using one zero that's the active runway that the the fact that even though it was said by the king air crews several times that they were coming in on two eight it just never was it in their heads they never got it they never expected them to be coming in opposite direction so uh, yeah that's exactly right uh, and that is a very high workload situation on the flight deck for the JetBlue crew. I don't think it's any excuse, but almost all of that involves both pilots. They're doing challenge response checklists, yep. so they're both involved, both checking. They're both listening to their departure clearance. It certainly was on our airline that it was a requirement for both of you to listen and confirm what clearance you've received. And so a lot of that time, they're out of the loop. And this is where I sort of come back to the King Air crew and their non-standard calls. 
uh, you might only get one or two of those calls from the King Air, whereas he said more or less the same information, like a countdown of his uh, his approach to 2-8 multiple times. So he's now sort of going, well, I've said it several times now, I, I'm going to abbreviate this one a little bit. So I can understand why the FAA want you to put out a standard call every time, because the the other incident aircraft, it might be the only call they hear. So it might, a non-standard call might just be the one bit of confusion it needs to set up all the funyuns uh, in the wrong place. I'll tell you what, though, if I'm if I'm in that King Air and I see an airliner departing, you know, opposite direction of me, I'm probably going to break off my approach and figure oh, yeah. out something different um, to do. I would not have continued there. that. <laughs> Steph, yeah, uh, indeed. Um, and uh, But I, I put the blame firmly in the uh, JetBlue uh, flight deck. Uh, and um, what's more, if they know there's an aircraft down, they can't see it on TCAS, and they're not absolutely certain they know where it is. They haven't picked it up visually. They know it's about to land on their runway then what the hell are they doing taking the runway? Because even if they got it right and it was landing on one zero, they've just put themselves on the threshold of, an air, of a runway that's about to be used. What, because, what Captain they? Nick, their, their clearance void time was about to expire, and that's the <laughs> yeah, end exactly. of the world. And, and I, <laughs> I have to ask the question, why is there only a two-minute limit on this clearance void time? It gives the crew no flexibility and it merely puts them under a, a time pressure is it absolutely necessary to have it only two minutes or was that something the controller dreamt up uh oh i'll just give them two minutes because it's more convenient for me well there are multiple inbounds uh to that airport uh on instrument flight rules plans they can't I don't yeah, know what the radar situation is, but they have to have um, like the the timing and spacing just right for all those operations to occur. I'm guessing. I don't know. Okay. Right. They um, also the JetBlue crew also said they were ready for departure, like meaning yeah, we could true. go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe the yeah maybe the controller thought this is what they want. <laughs> what happens what? if they call back and said somebody cut us oh. off and we didn't make our time? They'll get a different nothing, void time. Right? Yeah. Then they say, nothing. "Well, let me get another time for you." Yeah, nothing. You just yeah. call back, say, "Hey, we couldn't do it." There was we understand your point. Traffic, Camacho. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not not a major. No, uh, I'm not being facetious. facetious. I, I don't know. Big... I've never had a. Oh never yeah, had yeah a no, it's, void it's... Time. I don't know how that system works. <laughs> yeah, they'll just give you a new one. Um, yeah. it's not a big deal. It might be. Oh, now you got to wait 15 minutes. And yeah. it, it depends on the situation. There are times when, like airport, like you're going from um, Greenville, Spartanburg to Atlanta, and if you miss your void time. Uh, then you, it might be a half an hour before they have another slot for you to I've, kind of fit in, you know. So. Like I've been a passenger in that situation, probably going from like Charlotte to Atlanta, like needing to de-ice or something, and we miss the void time, and then it's another twenty minutes. Right, you know? and then you got to go back and de-ice again. No. But in this probably, situation, yeah, exactly. They're going to Lock, Fort Lauderdale. That's a long flight. It's not. It's obviously has nothing to do with what's happening. It later on in their no, flight no, no, no. what's happening it's just right, right now the local environment. is the local environment i think that was the pressure the time pressure uh, for the controllers uh, there the other thing i wanted to mention and nick you probably picked this up uh, captain nick um the they say the book says on the uh, airbus 320 that if you suspect a sail, tail strike do not pressurize the aircraft and oh, don't absolutely. go any higher than 10,000 feet. Absolutely. Now, yeah, that was, was going to be my next point. Because it kind of leads me into the the thought processes that are going on on the flight deck. 
were they suddenly aware now that they had uh, made a big mistake and were they absorbed by that or were, were they a bit behind the the ball on all of this so I just wondered, did they both get enough rest? Were they both pr- properly prepared for the flight? But um, basically throwing the tail strike checklist out of the window, not doing it, uh, having had and confirmed from their cabin crew that they had a tail strike, uh, climbing above 10 and allowing the aircraft to become pressurised and then continuing to 31,000 feet. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> No, no, not in a million years, please. Because if you've damaged the uh, pressure bottle of the fuselage and it's weakened just sufficient for at 31,000 feet for you to have a massive decompression, you're putting the lives of everyone on board at risk. So one thing I thought there is definitely no excuse for (laughs) climbing to 31,000 feet. But, uh, you know, going through 10,000 feet, that airport's at 6,600 feet. So it seems like they would have passed that 10,000 foot threshold uh, pretty pretty quickly, quickly. but also seems like uh, they would have known about a tail strike very quickly also. Like the moment it happened. Yeah. Yeah. In most cases. Obviously they suspected uh, it because they called the flight attendants to say, Hey, did you hear anything? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So I had one other quick question. Uh, the way I read this, um, the JetBlue flight started their takeoff, um, and then it says, uh, let's see, it says the captain, uh, the pilot monitoring asked the pilot flying if the King Air was on runway 28. The captain, the pilot flying, asked Izzy, to which the pilot monitoring said, yeah, he's on 28. Do you see him? To which the pilot flying said no. So at this point, they have been talking, and neither of them see him visually, Right. Mm-hmm. After event, the JetBlue first officer explained that he observed traffic directly ahead on the TCAS and pointed it out. So is that just, is the captain's action to make this abnormal departure from the earth based on him looking at the TCAS? Or yeah, is he just so. making that realization that it's a, it's a opposing direction deal? And I was no, just surprised. I, I believe that, he, he did that off the TCAS information, okay. which I think is a bit rash uh, yeah. because, you know, the, the result is about an incredibly badly damaged aircraft. What what he could have done instead, I'm, I'm not absolutely certain. If he'd held it on and rotated and got airborne at the normal position and then done did his jink, um, would he have still missed the King Air? Probably. Probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, but if the King Air, of course, had taken avoiding action the same direction that the 320 did, uh, they might have still met in the air. But um, I, 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 I'm I, with you. Unless the King Air is on the runway and you can see him, I don't see the point of dragging the back end of the airplane along the runway for, uh, you know, a thousand feet while you try and heave heave off to get over him because you can't even see him you don't he's in the yeah. air doing this maneuver is actually yes. no use at all that was my thing is a king air is not a small airplane uh it's not a big airplane but it's also not a small airplane and it seems like if you can't even see them yet you would it seems rational to think that you would have a chance to miss them mm-hmm I think but, I think a lot of it has to do with the startle effect when the, just yeah. finally the realization that oh crap this guy's coming in opposite direction we should have known that but yeah <laughs> we never you know our brains never acknowledged it 
And so uh, I think it was just a snap reaction by the captain just to start rotating and just getting, yeah. you know, the airplane off the runway and away from the, because he couldn't see him, you know, and so he didn't know how close he was, except for the the rough estimate from the TCAS. I mean, we all know uh, TCAS ADSB, it's not like to the millisecond accurate. It's mm-hmm. it's generally pretty close, but you know when you when you're talking about inside of a couple of miles, you're not really sure exactly where that blip, you know, where the airplane is as as far as whether or not it matches up with that. Yeah. Right. There's also no the positive identification of airplanes, right? Just because you hear right. someone saying they're on final for a runway, and then you see a blip saying it's on final for that runway, you, you don't know that the airplane it you're talking to is airplane. the blip that right. you're looking at. There's no little yeah, tag you should get on it. The call sign uh, indicating uh, yeah. on ADSB, but on ADSB, um, but TCAS, I think the, no. our TCAS, yeah, our TCAS displays and the airliners don't have that information. No. That's why I love my ADSB. Oh, you have that information on. <laughs> yes. I love that. my ADSB. Okay. Well, good. I mean, I think I have it's that good. information. I've got. Uh, That's good. Yeah, all the all the info. Sweet. All right. Well, good job, JetBlue. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it was a bad day for those guys. Uh, Again, that's just, I guess the danger here is that, you know, you just have to, I don't know, what do you say? You just got to clear up your brain and slow things down a little bit. You know, don't get yourself into a time pressure uh, situation. And if you, if you can't like actually physically, visibly, you know, see the airplane that could be a conflict, then just stop and count to 10, you know, and and say, what are we doing here? You know, I don't know where this airplane is. That's a, that's a great point. But then again, I never had to operate in this kind of short haul environment where mm-hmm. you're doing multiple sectors and, you know, a few minutes delay is going to, you know, hit you throughout the entire day. So I kind of get a feeling for it. But uh, yeah. for me in long haul, you know, we would never have really thought about doing this. You know, cause yeah, you never work in this environment. On the ground. Yeah. yeah. Well, it doesn't matter. So All right. Are we going to take the next one? Yeah, uh, Steph, we, we've been waiting for you uh, to uh, be here with us so we could cover this news item. Uh, I know. In fact, I even thought it, we had covered it. Um, I was like, didn't we do this I, already? I believe <laughs> nope. uh, Radio Roger mentioned that we were covering it last week. Oh, okay. But did not. Yeah. Did. Didn't get to did it. Did not because then somebody had... didn't turn up. No, yeah. I did turn up. Uh, Liz, is, Liz is accusing me of not showing up last week. I did uh, show that's up. True. I just did not she have did, a working technically. track. <laughs> my, I had computer <laughs> issues. I couldn't use my computer. Anyway, it's useful now. Um, all right, so this is from the Daily Beast. Dot, what is that? Com? Yeah, DailyBeast.com. Uh, pilot sentenced for decapitating wingsuit skydiver with plane's wing. Mm. This uh, was sent in by Radio Roger as well as Dean Yoder. And Dean says, Hey, I'm a first officer at Acme's regional airline, Acme Junior. I saw this article and would love to hear the crew talk about it, especially with Steph being a jumper dumper as well. My favorite podcast of all time. That's brownie points right there yep uh thanks dean yoder all righty i'm gonna go to where we get into the meat of this because it just kind of re oh, oh okay. that's an unfortunate choice of words oh <laughs> i don't know is there much <laughs> meat in really. the head <laughs> there's no meat in your head come on now all right i'll read the whole thing mm. a pilot in france found guilty of involuntary manslaughter after he decapitated a skydiver with the wing of his plane in a mid-air collision was given a suspended sentence and banned from flying for a year. The Montembon criminal courts ruling case came in the case of Nicholas Galli, 40, 
who was killed during a wingsuit jump in July of 2018, so a number of years ago. Galley, an experienced skydiver and engineer, died just moments after he leapt from the plane. Uh, the pilot has not been identified, but was named in previous reports about the accident as Alain C., the Midi Pyrenees Skydiving School Association, which employed the pilot, was given a fine of about $22,000 by the court, uh, though half of the penalty was suspended, Le Parisian reports. Uh, so, what happened? On July 27, 2018, Galli was the first of two wingsuiters to jump from a single-engine aircraft over Boulogne and Kersey north of Toulouse in southern France, according to the Times. Both jumpers left the plane at around 14,400 feet. This is not, this is just a stock photo if you're looking at the uh, uh, video or images. Well, but, I, so hang an idea on a minute, of, that yeah. bloke hasn't got a head. This is, well, it's perspective. <laughs> <laughs> well, well my from perspective, my perspective, he hasn't got a head. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Within seconds, however, LNC's plane caught up with both skydivers around 1,000 feet into their descent. At that point, both skydivers had completed their initial freefall and were gliding with their webbed wingsuits. Oh man, so much issue with the terminology used in this article, but that's fine. We're going to ignore that and move on. Uh, it was during that stage of the jump that the left wing and a strut of LNC's plane hit Galley, decapitating him. Galley's emergency parachute deployed, and his headless body drifted down to a field. At previous court hearings, was the, that really necessary for them I, to say? I told you, I'm reading, the whole, I'm reading the whole thing. Here. I know, I know, thing. but and that's not your fault. I'm just saying the journalist. Why? You know? Okay, we got it. I said I have a lot of <laughs> lot of no problems hands. with the terminology in general used in this, okay. is it regards to technical aspects of wingsuiting and skydiving, flying, and apparently yeah. also um, decapitation events. Um, at previous court hearings, the pilot said he hadn't briefed the eight parachutists and two wingsuiters who were aboard that was what was his fourth jump flight that day. He also said he'd lost visual contact with the wingsuiters after they jumped and assumed he was clear of them. Compared with parachutists who are in free fall, it's more complicated with the wingsuiters who go more in a straight line, uh, the pilot said. They don't descend much and can be in conflict with the aircraft. He went on to claim that Galley did not follow the expected course and should never have been on that course. It wasn't my responsibility, pilot said. I think my flight plan made sense. This has been the tragedy of my life, but I am not at fault. LNC also admitted, though, that his license was not valid at the time of the jump because he'd violated restrictions imposed <laughs> by an aviation authority in connection with a medical condition. In addition to voluntary manslaughter, he was found guilty of operating without a valid aeronautical license. Um, Emmanuel Franck, a lawyer for Galley's family, said there was a lot of recklessness or negligence in the case. The president of the court also highlighted a failure of communication between the pilot and the victim. So that is the, the article. Um, so so is this common, uh, Steph? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, okay. This doesn't happen. No. How do wingsuiters normally kill themselves? Uh, yeah, well, usually it's in jumping out of airplanes. Usually it's not jumping from, from airplanes. Yeah. Usually it's usually it's seafit. Yeah. Um, okay. So in this case, um, Liz, you can put that picture back up there again if you would like. So for those who are watching the video, um, that's a caravan and that's the wingsuit leaving a caravan. Um, they were not flying a caravan. I believe they were flying a Pilatus Porter, which has a very different um, uh, descent characteristic. Uh, generally, um, they can descend very slowly and very steeply, and they can fly, basically match the descent profile of a wingsuiter. Um, there's actually a pretty famous um, stunt that was done by the Red Bull um, 
uh, some Red Bull wingsuiters and pilot where they actually started a base jump, but then caught up to the porter and were able to land back inside the airplane going through the door of the airplane while they were matched in their descent rates. Just to give you an idea of how um, steeply and slowly that aircraft can descend. Um, I fly a caravan, not exactly like this one, but similar. And typically we're going to, we uh, not typically, always, we outrun the wingsuiters um, by a large margin, even when uh, they're always going to be last out unless there's a couple probably special instances where that wouldn't happen, but they're going to be the last out. I watch them as long as I can and haven't been given a different direction to fly by ATC, which sometimes also happens. Um, but very quickly, we're ahead and below on uh, the descent profile. Um, we descend at 160 knots roughly, and they're not going to get anywhere near that speed. Steph, does that mean you actually have to go past them, go no, through them? No, they're behind them? us always. Always behind okay. us. Once right. they leave the aircraft, they're behind our descent path, and they, they right. can't catch us. So as long as you descend straight ahead, you're Ringo's always going to be safe. Straight ahead, and, and typically um, our wingsuiters are going to fly um, kind of a, a rectangular pattern to stay within the area based on what the winds are doing. So once they exit the aircraft and they're stable, they'll fly straight for a moment, but typically then they're going to turn left or right. If there's multiple wingsuiter groups, they're going to go in opposite directions and different widths, and they've all talked about that and communicated that. Everything typically is pretty coordinated in that fashion. Um, you know, we know what we expect them to do because that's that's what happens. Um, and most of the time we're going straight ahead. And then, um, we're like I said, it's, it's the aircraft that I fly that we're never going to be in conflict because they're always going to be behind us and slower than us. Or right. we're on the ground okay. well before they ever get anywhere near there, near to the landing right. area. Cool. But the porter's a little bit different. I don't have any porter time. Um, I've watched a few of those videos. Um, there's definitely more than one video out there uh, depicting that type of stunt or attempt at a uh, stunt where the wingsuiters are trying to re-enter the door of the aircraft. Um, you know, I don't know what their intention was in this case. It's very strange to me that they could head up, they could end up um, ahead of the aircraft, even though... Uh, I just I don't have enough familiarity with that aircraft to know how those descent patterns look. I've never seen that. So. All right. Well, you're the only one here on the panel that has any kind of a experience yeah. with. And now I actually, as of last weekend, have four wingsuit jumps myself under my belt. So that was oh, yes. you saw the picture. Yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. Um, how was that? Yeah, joined the dark side. It's it's awesome. It's really cool. Uh, it's definitely a learning curve. It's something new. Um, there's a lot of uh, surface area there to learn how to to manage and control effectively, but yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, Steph looks like a, one of those little cuddly sugar gliders, you know. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the, in the the first wingsuit jump course that I did, the instructions are as you exit the aircraft before it, you know you're going to watch the the airplane's going to fly ahead of you and away from you before you're even open into your suit for for our newer wingsuit jumpers. So cool. there should never be any conflict. Well, since we have our doctor on staff here today with us, we're going to mm -hmm. skip to the uh, O1E. A wings, real, well, Michael okay. had a question that Liz put up there. Can you oh, tell sorry. us a little bit? Sorry. It sorry. says, just since it was up there, I'll, I'll answer it because it'll uh, be fairly quick there. 
he asks, can you tell us a little bit about what it feels like jumping in a wingsuit as opposed to standard skydive? So um, with wingsuiting, there's a lot of, um, you know, standard skydiving is basically vertical motion, vertical speed. The wingsuit adds in that horizontal component to it. Um, so you you definitely notice the, the flying effect of it. And there's a lot of, um, you know, you, you have a much more of a sense of how you're controlling your flight path, at least for me. I think some of the better um, skydivers, better than myself, who do a lot of angle flying and movement jumps, which is a thing as well, um, have a good sense of their movement across the ground. Um, but it's really interesting to see from a wingsuit perspective. You know, you're watching the terrain, you're watching where you're going. Um, obviously where I'm jumping, I'm very familiar with the, the area, but you know, it's definitely talked about in terms of navigation. Um, it's a longstanding joke that, you know, wingsuits, wingsuiters end up landing offsite, not infrequently because they lose track of where they're going navigation wise <laughs> and they don't make <laughs> it back to their intended landing zone or they have a long walk. Um, so that's, that's the main difference. I mean, it's definitely much more, uh, forward horizontal motion as opposed to just vertical motion is it a natural sort of i'm superman kind of feel when you're flying as long as you're doing it well yes um yeah there's actually a lot more that goes into in terms of arm position and leg position and making sure that everything's stable and symmetric um a lot of the first couple jumps just focus on being stable in the wingsuit so that you're not spinning turning unintentionally um and that when you it's time to deploy your parachute you do that symmetrically as well so you don't end up in a bunch of line twists Right. Interesting. All right. Since we have our doctor on staff with us today, we're going to cover 1E, which is uh, from the source uh, Paddle Your Own Canoe. I was hoping we'd get to one of those today. Um, three U.S. senators have written to FAA Administrator Michael Whitaker to urge the agency to force airlines to carry EpiPen auto injectors in their emergency medical kits, arguing that good fortune has so far prevented passengers from dying from a mid-flight anaphylactic shock. Um, EpiPens contain a life-saving dose of epinephrine, which can quickly reverse the effects of anaphylactic shock and importantly can be administered by lay people without any prior medical training. At present, however, the Federal Aviation Administration only requires airlines to carry single-dose vials vials of epinephrine, uh, which must be administered by a trained medical professional with a syringe. The current rules haven't been updated since 2004. Some airlines voluntarily, <laughs> some airlines voluntarily carry EpiPens or the generic equivalent in their medical kits, but many carriers, including Southwest Airlines, don't. Even airlines that do carry EpiPens could stop at any moment because they're not required to have them. Having an epinephrine auto-injector available is especially crucial in a setting like an airplane where emergency medical personnel may not be present or immediately available, wrote Senators Elizabeth Warren, Chuck Schumer, and Edward Markey in their open letter. The senators noted that in many onboard emergency medical incidents involving a severe allergic reaction, passengers had the good fortune of having a medically trained seatmate on board who could administer epinephrine from a single dose vial. But they warned we cannot continue to rely on good fortune to protect the 2.9 million passengers on every one of the 45,000 daily airline flights in the United States. Okay, so you get the you get the gist here. Um, what do you, this is a good idea, don't you think, Steph? I think it's a good idea. I mean, it's something that takes a 
<clears throat> excuse me, almost no space in a medical kit. Um, it can be used by laypersons. Um, they can be pricey, but what's the value that you put on that for something that could be, you know, if you can head off a um, life-threatening event with minimal amount of training from bystanders. What do you think the chances are that airlines will voluntarily have these on board because the uh, it wasn't made a rule in the uh, Reauthorization Act? Yeah, about zero. Okay. <laughs> Good. So you're telling me there's a chance. There is hope, uh, you know. Uh, uh, yeah. Can I ask a, a stupid question? Um, this stuff, uh, Epine Frine, or however you pronounce <laughs> it, um, uh, do, do they have it on trains? I don't know. No idea. Yeah, you see, the, the, it's all very well to club with the airlines yet again, uh, saying, ah, you've got to have this drug on board and that drug. and uh, uh, But, you know, if you're halfway between a long-distance uh rail line stations uh, you could mm. be in an equally difficult situation on a train or a true bus. although i think in this country yeah, specifically bus. the volume of passengers on airliners is significantly higher compared with long distance train or bus rides oh, not right. saying that that yeah. makes that any different if you're the unlucky person on the long distance train or bus ride who has an yeah. Uh, yeah. anaphylactic reaction but just you know the the Statistically, the possibility that it could happen on an airline is probably greater just from the amount of passengers, volume-wise. What? Yeah, and I don't know if you know the percentage or not, the stats on this, um, but the people that would be most likely to need one of these EpiPen administrations, um, would they, uh, probably the percentage uh, is a high one that people already know that they're allergic to certain things? I don't, or is I there... don't know the percentage. Yeah. Um, you have to have experienced the allergy. Yeah. Um, there's always a chance that either you develop a new allergy, oh. um, kind of rare, or you just haven't come in contact with whatever the particular allergen is in okay. your life. Probably more commonly that would happen with someone younger. Um, but I'm not sure of the, the exact percentages. Interesting. No, I, I'm only in favor of it. We had them on board our aircraft, so, uh, you know, we were the good guys. So, uh, just to be clear, all in favor of having it, I think it's, you know, potentially very high reward for, you know, I'm all in favor of it. I just, I know Nick is too. I yeah. think we all I put, are. I put the end up. Yeah. 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 All right, let's move on then with uh, H. Um, This is from the Aviation Safety Network. Uh, There was an accident um, in the Asheville, uh, North Carolina area just a few days ago, 14th of December, uh, involving a Diamond DA-40 November Golf Diamond Star operated by Lyft Academy. Uh, They crashed on I-26 while on approach to Asheville Regional Airport. circumstances unknown. The aircraft declared emergency shortly before the crash, stating they had an oil pressure and dual ECU, which is engine control unit failure. Now, the Diamond DA-40 is a single-engine airplane, I think uh, Austrian-designed and built a couple places in the world. Um, And I have some audio... Approach. What's 907? Uh, mayday, mayday. We've got uh, uh, oil pressure failure, looks like, and uh, two ECU failures. We're coming in. 
Regional Airport, trying to make it back to runway 17. 2100, yep, and uh, yeah, we're uh, coast our best glide here. Best glide speed they're maintaining. Trying to stretch it out as far as they can. And I think those airplanes are pretty good glide. Ratio. They are. Okay, Roger, lift uh, 907, and uh, yeah, it looks like, honestly, with our best glide, we're probably not going to make it, so if there's anything else uh, close by that you see that may get us uh, some help, or let us know. That's pretty calm, pretty uh, chill. That's the instructor, I believe. Approach, uh, just to let you guys know, we've got our engine restarted. We just heard a big bang, though, so we may lose it again here. We're going to try to put some uh, altitude on we're trying our best. Uh, looks like we got about half power, and uh, we're getting some smoke in the cockpit here. Yeah, smoke's not good. But half power, at least you have some power. Asheville ground up six. Up six, Asheville. Which runway are you using right now? Currently, we're using runway one seven. The aircraft is inbound to runway one seven. Roger, up six from Fox. Right, let's go north on Alpha Top eight. Up six, two is question. Up six north on Alpha Top eight. Oh, that's perfect on Alpha Top eight. I don't know what that was. Five degrees to the right, front of the Baba. Another airplane. Two souls on board with 907 and probably approximately 30 gallons of fuel. That was the accident, or the, yeah, emergency airplane, I believe. Asheville Tower, this is Rescue 2. Rescue 2, Asheville Tower, you can proceed northbound on taxiway Alpha. Asheville Tower, apologize, I have someone else in the other ear for me. Can you say that again? Rescue 2, Asheville Tower, you can proceed on to taxiway Alpha. Proceeding on the taxiway Alpha, I'm going to be traveling north to the uh, about Alpha 7, Alpha 8 area. Rescue 2, approved, and uh, the aircraft inbound currently about four miles from the field. They managed to get their engine back up. They're at half power, two souls on board, 30 gallons of fuel. Copy that, thank you, Rescue 2. Sorry, Delta Bravo. the end of anything that's pertinent so let me stop the playback of that um so my general impression of this oh by the way i think that the outcome of this um, it was good was yeah. good i think they were able to walk away from the airplane and then it caught on fire and there was like some injuries huge... and then there was a post-crash fire that they were safely away from okay were they serious injuries or i you know i read one of the um, articles it said it 
significant injuries, but non-life-threatening. Okay, good. I hope yeah. Oxus has an interesting comment here, Jeff. Okay. Um, let me find my window for... Okay. I Hall Boxes in our live audience says ECU failures seem to be a plague for Diamond aircraft. Seems like they are programmed to just shut everything off at the slightest anomaly. What do you think, Camacho? Yeah, I mean it's a, you know, that it's that is a uh, electrical, an ECU is an engine control unit. That is a an, that is an electrical component. Um that is not common on most general aviation airplanes. It has software loaded on it. It, it has a bunch of electrical components built into it. And uh, it's basically a computer that it runs the engine, manages the engine parameters. Kind of like a FADEC for a jet engine? Yeah, basically. I mean, it's it's super common in cars, right? It's, it manages timing and fuel injection and all that sort of stuff. But it's not super common in general aviation airplanes, because it's just never really been, um, I don't know, it's never really been adopted as a um, reliable source of output, I guess. You okay. know, I mean, 98%, that's a guess on my part. Most of the engines in general aviation mm-hmm. airplanes are all uh, magneto and magneto ignition, so fixed timing. Uh, either carbureted or mechanical fuel injection. So, uh, you know, not controllable fuel injection. Uh, Mm. They're basically tractor engines without any modern controls. The downside is they don't run as efficient or as effective as modern engines with all that stuff. But the upside is they're a lot more reliable than things that require software and are continually changing parameters Mm. of the engine. And being reliable is an important thing if you're in a machine that is above the If you're earth. in a single engine airplane at yeah. night, reliability is desired. <laughs> yeah. Which yes. is what these people were yeah. single engine airplanes. Yeah, this happened at about eight fifteen at night local time, I mm. think. Yeah. Um and it's it's in mountainous terrain. Um you know, they, they got real close. The where they put it down on I twenty six is like the equivalent of one um, exit away from where the airport is, and the airport is immediately adjacent to the highway. Um, good decision on their part, you know, because I, it's just trees and stuff that you can't see otherwise um, if you're heading straight for the runway. Um, busy highway, I-26, mm. and especially that stretch is always Too under const- It's <laughs> perpetually under construction. Um, so, you know, a lot of, uh, lane closures and things like that. And it, it makes all kinds of, I haven't been up there in a little while on that stretch, but, um, it's been under construction for forever. So I'm sure it still kind of is, it looks like there's some temporary barriers up there in the picture that we were able to see before. Um, so, you know, good job on, you know, not uh, managing not to hit any cars on the road, um, landing safely enough to be able to, um, for egress from the airplane and being able to get away from it before that fire ensued. And what did you think of the, uh, I, I thought the, I'm guessing, I'm assuming that it was an instructor pilot, student pilot situation. It was, yeah. Uh, and the instructor pilot is the voice that we hear on the radio. And think I'm thinking, so. gosh, darn it. I, I don't know if I could have been that calm and collected uh, making those transmissions like yeah. he was. I mean, that yeah. was pretty amazing. That was, that was well done. Neil's yeah. saying here that must have been risky. 
Yeah, uh, Neil Landworm in our in our audience says must be risky at night with overhead wires, signs, etc. Go ahead. I read somewhere that they actually did clip a power line. Um, oh. Yeah. So. Yeah, but the thing I thought of immediately, uh, Steph, was it's dark and definitely high terrain in that area. I'm flown I've in flown the, in there at night the and it's many times. Yeah. yeah, it's you have to know where the terrain is for sure. Yes, because it's just nothing but a bunch of black. Yep. You know, it's not, not a lot of lights. There's not a lot of light. It's hard to see. Yeah. yeah. All right. Very good. Um, and uh, since we were talking about uh, engines and uh, engine efficiency and such, and of course, one of the requirements for an uh, engine to operate uh, at all, whether it be efficiently or not, is fuel. And uh, there has been a move in general aviation to um, move away from, um, low, what is it, 100 low-level fuel? Low, low lead. lead. Low lead, fuel, low lead. Not level. <laughs> you don't want low level fuel. Low, you low want level low lead. lead. Low lead. <laughs> um, and uh, so I'm trying to find why is this not moving to that article? I'm sorry. That's why I'm trying to. Do you want me to start your... reading it? Yes, please. This is an article from AvWeb and it's uh, titled Santa Clara Airport's Fight to Keep Leaded Gas Out. Uh, Santa Clara officials are pushing back against the proposed legislation in the FAA reauthorization bills that would require them to reintroduce leaded aviation fuel. Calling it a step backwards for Santa Clara airports, Local News Matters reported local officials are actively opposing two bills in the House and Senate. The Senate Senate bill mandates airports to continue offering the same fuel types used since 2022 until 2030 or until a widely distributed widely distributed alternative is available. Meanwhile, the House bill version, which has already passed, requires airports to sell the same fuels available as of 2018. Should Congress pass the legislation, these bills would overturn the county's lead ban implemented in January 2022. Uh, While eliminating leaded aviation gasoline is a priority for GA advocates, it is clear stakeholders are urging caution until a viable alternative is available. However, several environmental activists are calling on local officials to follow Santa Clara County's precedent and, in precedent and eliminate 100 low lead from their airports. This week, the Santa Clara Board of Supervisors plan to ask the county's Federal Affairs Advo- Advocacy Task Force to explore local strategies to protect the county's authority to restrict the sale of leaded fuels, according to the local news matters. For now, FAA reauthorization remains stalled. The House passed another reauthorization extension to fund the agency until March 8, 2024, while the Senate will need to vote on legislation before funding expires at the end of the month. So so what do you think here? Do they really want uh, – they don't want that airport there at all, do they? The Santa so Clara County people? I, I think that's part of it, right? There's a bunch of things at play here. Um Airplane engines are designed to run on, you know, the the way that airplane engines operate and the uh, compression ratios that most of them operate at, they require something in the range of uh, 100 octane fuel. And the way, basically, the reason the lead is in the fuel, tetraethyl lead is what's in the fuel, and it uses an octane booster. Um, and it's, you know, all the technical mumbo jumbo is basically the makeup of 100 low lead uh minimizes or reduces the possibility of detonation, which is a, um, when an engine operates, you want this like continuous, smooth, nice, um, burning of the fuel. Right. And if, and if things start going awry, you'll get detonation, which is basically an explosion in the chamber. And what that 
results in is um, breaking high temperatures, breaking engine components, and that sort of thing. Um, so we use uh, lead to uh, help reduce the detonation possibility, I guess, is, is a, the way to say that. Um, I, I think it's uh, pretty... So there are a lot of people that are hesitant about getting rid of the lead in Avgas. I, I think that the number of people that are actually just like the lead doesn't matter. Um, just leave the lead alone. Uh, I think that number is very small. I think the large minority of pilots of which I am a part of is. Um, large majority, large majority. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, is that lead is annoying and gross. Like we, we know that it's bad for you. It's, it's hard. It's, it's a non, uh, there's some number more than zero, right? That it is detrimental to people. It's hard to associate, uh, exactly the impact on people. Cause there are so many variables putting all the health aspects of it aside, which I'm not an expert on, um, just operating a leaded fuel engine. Uh, which I'm also not an expert on, but know more about. It's gross. It uh, it fouls plugs. It makes it runs dirty. It's like if we had an option to run a fuel that had lead or run a fuel that didn't have lead, I would rather run a fuel that didn't have lead. But going back to what we were talking about with the ECU thing, we also have many, many, many decades of experience running these airplane engines on leaded fuels, right? First it was 100, 130, and then it was 100 standard lead. And then it was 100 low lead. I remember and back in the day when I was flying, um, GA, uh, in my right flyer, uh, that we, uh, were using leaded fuel as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, yeah. you know, we're talking about hundred low lead now. They, they used, uh, they had 130 octane fuels back you know, back in World War II when we were making tons of power out of really big engines. Um, so we've made progress in the right direction, right? Um, the, the problem is, uh, as it gets harder to build confidence, right? Because not only do we have um, 80 years or whatever we have of flying on leaded fuels, uh, I guess probably more like 100 years. I don't know when we started flying on leaded fuels, if it was back at the beginning, but it's a really long time. But, you know, the sample sizes we're dealing with right now is or are a lot smaller because we have fewer people flying. So it's a shorter time duration and we have fewer people flying. And there are lots of people actively working on replacing the lead, the leaded fuels with unleaded fuels. The problem is there are some places that are like, we just want to get rid of leaded fuels. Mm -hmm. um, and the FAA even has a mandate. I think it's 2030 that they're trying to say that they want to have a complete coverage, unleaded alternative fuel for general aviation. Um, you know, but the concern is if some, if, if a place like Reed Hillview, which is, um, a pretty significant general aviation airport right now, if they say, Oh, you can't sell leaded fuel here anymore. Um, and there's no option until 28 or 2030 to, uh, get back to a general aviation um, infrastructure there, I just, you're just not going to get it back, right? Like that's what we found out 
time and time and time again is that like once you lose an airport or once you lose a GA portion of an airport, you can't get it back because there's either more money in um, cargo aviation, 121 flying, um, bizjet flying. Like there's just more money in somebody who wants to operate a G4 than there is in somebody who wants to operate a 172. So it's hard to get that back. Additionally, uh, the land is very valuable. So there's also people that want to get rid of the airport completely. And, um, uh, you know, tear the airport down and just build a thousand condos in place of the airport. So, um, I think that makes, I think that blurs the lines. I, you know, when people say like, Oh, be, be careful. Don't just take our leaded fuel away. I think there's a lot of people that don't, uh, that aren't, um, educated on it. And they're like, Oh, those guys are just selfish. They just want to keep playing with their toys. That's not the case. And additionally, uh, I think when, you know, if people are not, uh, educated on the situation and they hear, Oh, Reed Hillview wants to bring back leaded fuel. They don't care about the children that live near the airport. Um, that's, that's not the case either. You know, we're yeah, but if an airplane, if an airplane falls on top of your children. Um, that's not a good thing either. <laughs> well, that would that's, be bad. that's true. That's, that's not a good thing. And you know, like that's, I, I don't want to like come out and say I'm a conspiracy theorist, but it, it is hard to, uh, understand without doing tons of research and investigation. It's hard to understand how far back, you know, all of these proposals and governmental actions go. And, you know, it seems totally plausible that at the end of that line, there's a deep pocketed, uh, developer maybe, or whatever that is like, Oh, I see an end for to have getting that rid of the airport. I think Jim Mercado's yeah. comments. Yeah. Jim uh, Mercado, um, APG brand, um, ambassador, um, lives in the area. And, uh, he said Reed Hillville airport has been under attack view. by the surrounding. I'm sorry. What? Oh, Reed, Hillview. Hillview. Reed Hillview airport has been under attack by the surrounding community for years. This is the latest front. And sadly, I think there's a lot of general aviation airports out there that are constantly under attack because um, people in the surrounding community just don't understand the mission of general aviation. So there's always. So Neil in our audience that we we just read in one of his comments uh, said, "You know, we've been we've been running leaded uh, lead free fuel for years over here, and well, so have we our cars. What about your uh, general aviation over in the UK and Europe? Are they on?" No lead fuel. Um, I don't know. Is does anybody know? No. Sure, I mean, someone in the chat room I, we no were idea. we were buying leaded gas when we were over there. So oh. I would assume it's hundred low. Okay, so they have similar. leaded gas over there too. So Neil, sounds like you guys are all in the same boat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think the, I think Neil's asking. We made that transition in cars. Why we why can't we make that transition mm -hmm. in aviation? And yeah. and I think that's a valid question. And I think it's happening. I also think you have to keep in mind the economy of scale, right? It was an, for one, it was an easier, um, it was an easier problem to solve with cars because you were dealing with lower octane engines. So most cars are running on 87 to 91 octane mm. gas. Um, so it's a lower octane mm. engine. So it's an easier problem to solve. I think that helped. Additionally, I think the fact that there are, I don't know, a thousand times as many cars as there are airplanes a million times. I don't know what the ratio is, but the, uh, um, 
the economy of scale there made it much more um, desirable for companies trying to solve that problem to work on that problem, right? There's the amount of uh, leaded fuel that's sold is not as large. So there's uh, a longer payback period, so to speak, for solving that problem. Uh, the distribution network is a lot different. So whereas like with car gasoline, you have uh, a gas station in every community and you have multiple gas stations in all the big communities, you know, aviation, it's scaled down a couple of orders of magnitude, right? Like every, for every five small communities, you may have one airport. And additionally, you know, in big cities where you may have uh, 30 or 50 gas stations, you may have three to five airports. So it's just kind of getting through that, um, just kind of getting through that initial maze of sorting out all of the logistics of how to make it work and how to get it distributed and how to make it uh, like reasonably affordable, right? Most of the people that I've either talked to or I've read articles about say, we want to get rid of the lead. We have no problem paying 10% more or a dollar more a gallon or whatever it would be. But at the same time, you can't expect people to pay, say, two or 300% and have it be a viable solution, I guess. I found an article uh, in the University of Kent, uh, which uh, mentions this, and it says you guys over there in the States are actually uh, a bit of a leader in this field because in the United Kingdom, indeed, we uh, still put uh, lead in our aviation fuel and they say uh, this problem is recognized by the EPA in the United States. It's received little attention in the United Kingdom. Uh, so they're Yahoo's over there in the UK. We are indeed Yahoo's over here. And Yay! we find that the majority of aviation fuel sold in the UK is leaded. And there are 370,000 residences within four kilometers of a general aviation airport at risk from exposure to lead emissions. So, you know, not an insignificant problem on a country with uh, a large population, small area. True. Yeah. And, and going back to like the, uh, the scaling issue, right. Or the volume issue. I, Everybody operates on 100 low lead right now. Um, and I just, and in places like the UK, I, I don't think that there is enough of a market for uh, airplane gas for a viable solution to be determined, or to be created, right? Like a, a company, if it, whether it costs $10 million or $100 million or whatever it's going to cost, it just seems like uh, the United States is the most likely place for that to happen because we have so much general aviation activity over here. And then I suspect it'll like f rapidly flow over to other parts of the world is how I would see that. Yeah. Ludger says there are STCs to run aircraft on unleaded fuel in Germany. Usually people take off and land on Avgas in one tank and cruise on unleaded fuel in the other seems to work for them. That's true. Uh, the Luscom that my dad has, has a STC to fly on, uh, unleaded gas and you can operate it on car gas, which we've done. And that also goes back to the, the leaded, uh, the lead in the fuel, right? The, it, 
valves plugs it causes valves to stick i know a lot of guys with the little engines that don't need the lead they'll mix car gas and uh, av gas to lower the lead level even more to kind of minimize sticking valves a lot of guys run car gas exclusively because the valves don't stick because there's no lead um there's only i think there's only one manufacturer of tetraethyl lead in the world now so that's another thing that makes people nervous that are running 100 low lead is if something happens to them I think it's a UK company. Uh, I should have looked that up before we started talking about it, but you know, they're always under attack from environmental uh, organizations. And so there's some concern about if something happens to them and there's no viable means to get the tetraethylet element of the fuel. Yeah. Yeah. Then how do we continue to do that? So I, I feel like it's important to keep the narrative in mind that, Everyone wants to solve this solution. It's not just that like pilots are saying, don't take away our leaded gas. And the city is saying, you can't fly with leaded fuel here. So we're kicking you out. It's just a, it's a hard problem we have to solve. Okay. All right. Well, let's get to know us. Keep our eyes and ears open for any updates regarding that in the future. And uh, now it's time for us to go to... Getting to know us. Yay. It's my favorite part of the show. Not everybody's cup of tea, though. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> Why, did we receive some feedback about that? We, we did. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, yeah. we, are we going to read it on the show? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah. When, it, when it's in, my turn to do... Uh, getting, in this segment. Do you want me to start it uh, then? Yeah, go. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see here. Um well, first, before I get to that, Tom Witherspoon first. Yes, I want. I meant to mention this on a, a earlier, uh, previous episode. Um, you know, you re- recall my little road trip that I did um, last month, and uh, on the way back, I stopped in a little bit east of Asheville and uh, got to spend the night um, in the Witherspoons uh, Airbnb, and also uh, had the opportunity to have a wonderful dinner with uh, Tom and his and his family. And one of his daughters, one of his twins, uh, I think I also mentioned that she's very creative and she's a writer and uh, an artist. And uh, so um, she was, when we were uh, after dinner and we were just having normal discussions, um, she was doing stuff on her iPad drawing. uh, I think it was an iPad uh, drawing some stuff. And uh, it was the uh, book cover for uh, the NaNoWriMo competition. Um, and, uh, anyway, Thomas, uh, sent this to me. He said, hi, Jeff, since you were there when she started the design, I thought I'd share my proud Papa news that Sylvie's artwork was one of the chosen covers, um, for the cover art contest. And, uh, there it is on the, uh, in the video we're showing that. Isn't that that amazing? And she actually wrote the book that goes with this cover. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's a very, very good job. So uh, just wanted to make sure that uh, I shared that with the community. And, you know, I told him, I don't blame you for being a proud papa. That's, uh, that's awesome. That's our job, right? Um, yeah. Okay. So let's move on to this uh, nice little um, piece. of. Now, this is the interesting, uh, maybe ironic thing. Uh, I'm covering this uh, during the Getting to Know Us segment. So I'm not sure that the writer of this uh, feedback is actually going to hear us read it and talk about it. (laughs) 
So it says, Jeff, I'm a newer listener. I only listen to about 75% of your content, but it's generally pretty good. I always skip over getting to know you. Listeners must like it or you wouldn't do it. But I think it's a little too self-serving and not worthy of my limited podcast time. Just another unsolicited opinion, he says. Mm. I realize you can't cover everything, but you uh, if you didn't cover the PDX incident recently where two pilots and one traffic uh, air traffic controller all screwed up to one degree or another, I think you ought to revisit that one. Yeah, we did actually cover that one. Um, and uh, let's see, it's, uh, it was a fascinating confluence of issues leading to a dangerous situation. The incident where the wrong departing flight acknowledged the controller's instruction, the flight, the right flight missed the call, and the controller initially missed that the wrong aircraft responded. Yep. Uh, we, we recall that. Um, <laughs> There's a comment. What's that? I'm sorry. Neil I'm, says, I'm did opposing something. bases send this in? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they, may, they may have. I wouldn't put it past them. No, Those guys. And then, so he goes, uh, that's all I got. I'm a du- double dinosaur, just for the record, old and seasoned, former private pilot, former PATCO controller, and worked uh, BFL, which is Meadows Field and Bakersfield, back in the late 70s, early 80s. Bakersfield BFL? was at that. Hmm? BFL? BFL. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the airport code for B- Bakersfield. Oh, okay. Bakersfield. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bakersfield is the identifier. I thought it was the job he did. Okay. Yeah, so, <laughs> Big... Uh, Big, yeah. <laughs> big funny. <laughs> Serious. Bakersfield was at that time one of three remaining non-radar approach control facilities in the FAA's western region. That made for lots of stories and hair-raising situations, both in the winter when the Thule fog uh, would set in for days at a time, as well as in the summer when we would accommodate dozens of training jet flights up from the L.A. basin in the waning days of the old GI Bill era, all conducting opposite direction approaches and VFR conditions. When we'd mix in the United and Hughes Air West traffic, along with all the high-performance guys, no one even gave consideration to stabilized approaches like they do now. Nothing crazier than instructing a United 737 on downwind in the general aviation traffic pattern to turn a tight two-mile base at the river at his uh, best possible speed and cleared to land number three behind the 172. Something like that. Anyway, and that's that's how he ended it, John Selda. Now, you know, so especially that last paragraph uh, seems kind of like a like a little getting to know John uh, segment. Um, but oh, uh, well, yeah. And yeah. Actually, anyway, I quite like it. I like quite like it. I'd like to get. I do to too. Know John yeah. more, but obviously we can't. Well, so no, he doesn't like it. So I think you know some. You know, he's an older gentleman. Podcasting's a relatively new thing, and I think personally, I'm kind of old myself. I'm going to turn 65 next week. Um, I, I, the thing I love about podcasting is that it's different from everything that we were used to in the past, as far as radio programming, television programming, all that stuff is all one way, one way. We don't, we can yell at our television or yell at our radio, but nobody's going to hear us unless we have somebody with us next to us that can hear our voice. Uh, but podcasting in general, uh, is a two way street where communication is it's both ways. You know, we love hearing. In fact, we're hearing all kinds of things all the time when we're live uh, recording the show uh, on the platform that we use. And we see all these people in our live audience, you know, communicating with us while we're doing the show. And then we have you sending in feedback as you did, John, you're, you're using this two-way street. You're sending us communication. Um, 
And, uh, and we love that. That's one of the great things that I think sets podcasting apart from other media um, and it builds that community. I mean, if it weren't for this two-way street, there wouldn't be an APG community. There might be groups that are listening to our show, but it's, it's not the community that we have now. And uh, so I think that's an important aspect of, um, of podcasting. And then I, I, I wrote in my notes here, if you don't like a certain segment in our show, that's not a problem. That's the beauty of podcasting as well. That's why we take the time to create chapter markers. Um, of course, if you don't have chapter markers, then you can, you know, fast forward or, you know, reverse or whatever you need to do to get onto a, a section of the show that you think might be worthy of your limited podcasting listening time. Um, uh, and, and a, a side note here, a lot, I know a lot of you out there listening to this right now are listening on Spotify or Pandora or TuneIn Radio, a lot of these streaming services. And sadly, they don't have the functionality uh, of chapters and chapter markers and chapter marker images that we take a lot of time and effort to produce for people that are listening to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, which kind of does a okay job with those things. Um, Overcast is my favorite podcast player. Um, on um, I think they're on, on maybe they're just on on the. Uh, uh, iPhone platform. I'm not sure about that. But anyway, there are a lot of great podcast players out there that will prominently show artwork when we're talking about it in the show. And, we, and as I said, I take the time and Captain Nick takes the time to put these chapter images at the appropriate points when he's doing his plain tales um, for your uh, convenience and enjoyment. Um, and it's And so if you are somebody who's listening via Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, et cetera, you might consider um, getting one of these podcast players that support chapters um, because I think Overcast you'll really... Overcast is only iOS, Jeff. I'm sorry? Overcast is only okay, iOS. Okay, Overcast is only uh, iOS, but but there are a lot of great... Um, uh, the, what's the other uh, I use Pocket Casts. It's pretty good. Pocket Casts? Pocket oh, yeah. Pocket, I used Pocket Cast before Overcast. That's another great one. And that's multi-platform, I believe. Yes. Um, and anyway, there are a lot of one, good ones out there that um, fully support uh, you know, chapter markers. And so like, uh, you're, maybe you, you agree with John and you go, you know, I like the news and I like the feedback, but I don't like the getting to know us segment. Well, all you have to do is just, you know, with your, with your list of chapter markers, just look for the one that says feedback and you can skip right to that. Um, so that's, uh, again, I, I'd be interested to hear from you all out there. Um, if, if you find that is something that you can, you benefit from or, or if it's just something that you didn't even know was going on and markers, you really yeah. don't care, you know, the chapter markers. Um, Fast forwarding does work just as well. I do that in a lot of podcasts that have ads in the middle of them where there right. might not be a chapter marker. Um, That's so. another thing. Ads. Do you guys like ads in podcasts? I absolutely <laughs> hate them. I really do. I mean, oh, yeah. And I just I don't wish, mind, I, so I don't mind when they put them all at the beginning or all at the end because then it's easy to get through them. And I appreciate that a lot of pod, you know, they're, this is their source of income and it's or a part of their source of income and they need that for the support of what they're doing in the show for various reasons. Totally get that. Sometimes I listen to them because I'm like, oh, that's an interesting product. Maybe I do want to mm. know more about it. But um, most of the time I just fast forward through all of that. And especially if it shows up in the middle of the, the show. It had been a long time since I'd heard or listened to Betty in the Sky. Mm. And I don't know from the last time I listened to now, I mean, just a couple of days ago, I went, whoa. 
that thing's filled with all kinds of advertising um, in it. You know, good for her. She's making making some money off her uh, effort. Uh, we here tend to go for the value for value kind of method for, uh, so we don't have advertisers at all. Um, and uh, so we just rely on you, the listeners, to uh, send us, you know, contributions. And uh, that way we keep the advertising down to like zero. And now if you're listening, if you're listening to something on, in some way of the show and you're actually hearing ads, let us know because we're n- you're not supposed to be hearing ads. So uh, I'd, I'd be curious to hear if that's, uh, that's something that uh, is happening. And then finally, I wanted to say regarding this whole thing, um, if anyone out there knows how to integrate uh, legacy chapter markers with podcasting 2.0 chapter markers, this is for the tech guys out there, let me know. Contact me. Let me know how I can do both. Because podcasting 2.0 is a different set of uh, podcast players out there that, from what I have um, experienced, don't see all the chapter markers that Nick and I are putting in there. Uh, You have to use like a a different way of getting uh, chapter markers in that. So anyway, uh, you were saying something, Liz? Uh, no, I was going to say, I think you had some other feedback you wanted to mention from another listener. Oh, yeah. Speaking of Spotify. I just want to make one quick other, point on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's great that everyone has differing viewpoints. Uh, I also think it's super convenient for John that he can get over his so easily. Because when I listen back to the show and I don't like Captain Nick, so I try to take all of his comments out, it's <laughs> significantly more work than just like skipping ahead through one section. <laughs> I'm trying to train my AI to do it for me, but I haven't figured that, it out I gotta say, you gotta And, and I hold boxes and when it becomes a six-hour show, he might skip some chapters. I said, I probably would too. Just <laughs> take a nap. Trust me, it's <laughs> never going to be a six-hour show, I hold boxes. Um, yeah, because I, we just don't have enough time in our <laughs> recording and post-editing to do it. Um, even though I'm going to be well, retired pre, very pre, shortly. Pre, 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 um, so. Anyway. Spotify, uh, I just got this email the other day, Spotify for podcasters. And it said, oh, you have some, you know, people answering your Q&A. And I went, what Q&A? I don't, I, I have no idea what they're talking about. Apparently, uh, when, when you have a podcast on Spotify, they'll generate this question at the end. Like, and the question is, what did you think about this episode? <laughs> I immediately went into the back end and said, nope, do not do that. I don't want you to ask that question to people who are listening on Spotify. Not that I don't care about what you think, but it's just like we I don't have a very effective way of of seeing these things. I just kind of stumbled upon this. Um, one of the nice ones uh, was from episode 597, uh, Louisa Maria. Uh, she said, I like this podcast and the episode was funny, but I have a question towards height requirements because I'm 1.54 meters and I would like to be a pilot. Does any airline require a certain height? I'm not sure I have the information regarding that. Do you all know anybody on the panel here about if there's a minimum height requirement? I think five feet tall or would the be community. tall enough or the community itself. I think I've seen people walking around that were five feet tall or maybe even under five feet that were wearing pilot uniforms. Uh, but I'm not yeah. absolutely I mean, the, the the average airliner usually has a highly adjustable mm-hmm. uh, seat and a set of rudder pedals and controls. Uh, fly Airbus, uh, that'll probably be, you know, perfect for you. I would I missed, agree. I'm sorry, I missed the question. Um, can you repeat it? it Is there a fine. height limit for becoming an airline pilot? 
She, she's only the, I mean, if you're going to train in a 172, you're just going to have to get a cushion. But other than that, um, should be good. How about flying a Boeing? Is there a height yeah. limit for flying well, if you're going a to train 737? To. Not that I'm aware of. No, I don't. I don't think so either. But there, there must be some kind of a minute. I mean, you can't if you're three feet tall. I mean, which would be very unusual. I would imagine they'd probably say mm, no. Can't do that. Um, no little people. But, uh, oh, and then this last one from the last show, uh, Twatter in Your Trousers was the title. Uh, George Riley writes in. He says, I love aviation podcasts, but I've never heard so much dribble in my, all my life. APG <laughs> used to be good uh, years ago, but has used deteriorated to. over the years to this dribble. Uh, I think he means dribble. Um, and, uh, oh, I think I know what he's what he's trying to communicate to me. He liked it back in the days when it was just me. So you yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah, he's saying, you're brilliant. Everyone else is drivel. <laughs> no, I, I really don't think that's what he's saying. He's just saying he doesn't uh, like it. But thank you very much, George Riley, for your uh, for your feedback. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Really appreciate that. You got some positive feedback from No Agenda, Jeff. I did get some positive feedback from No Agenda, Liz. Thanks. That's a great segue. <laughs> So I would just receive this from Tanya, one of our longtime supporters and uh, listeners uh, in, the Tanya chat room. in uh, New York City. And she's also in our live audience in our chat room. Uh, and she sent me a text earlier today and said, hey, I heard a, you know, it was a great shout out to APG in, at the very end of the uh, last episode of No Agenda. And uh, so they have something. Uh, they're, they're a two day a week show, uh, Sundays and Thursdays. And they also have a 24 seven stream that goes on. And APG was one of the, uh, podcasts, uh, in the world of podcasts that was selected to be on this stream. And honestly, I didn't even realize we were still on the no agenda stream, but, uh, here's what, uh, Adam and John said at the last part of the last show on Sunday. Coming up next on NoAgendaStream.com, we have, uh, oh, the airline pilot guide. We haven't heard from him in a while. No, that's good. That's a good show. No, it's a very good show. It's one of the better aviation podcasts out there. And you, if you're at uh, trollroom.io, you can listen in, use the modern podcast app as well. Now, I don't know. He kind of sounded like he was speaking in, uh, like, after the fact, like that was a good show. Um, I'm going to say, he know and he also didn't say it was a good show he just said it was one of the better aviation shows what? so that just means hey look i'll 50%, take it right that's it's one 50 percent is all we're going for here so. <laughs> it's one of the better Perfect. shows i i i uh treat that as a win <laughs> and i think it's the only aviation podcast that's on the no agenda stream so we gotta there we go there's a 50 percent guarantee right there so i do appreciate adam curry if you the guy that was speaking mostly in that little clip uh, is one of the podcasting pioneers. I mean, he was at the like one of the two people responsible for podcasting back way in the early, early, early years. So he is like a that people call him the Podfather. So, and, and Jeff, before yeah. you move on to somebody else, you, mm -hmm. you can tell them of what you did the other night. Oh, okay, I'll um, do that. You, Thank you, Liz. Yeah. Um, so, and finally, before we move on to somebody else, this hey, just a warning uh, to the uh, to the network um, affiliates. This might be the show might run a little bit longer than the normal three hours, but hey, last time it was only a little over two hours, so you know we got some slack, right? Um, so I received um, um, something from a communication from Greg Peterson. You'll remember Greg used to be one of our big ass fans. Uh, now he's just a big fan. Uh, no, no, uh, no big ass in there. 
Uh, that's a company that makes these big giant fans, if you're wondering, just to kind of keep this family safe. Uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. Um, he is now uh, working for um, an, an aerospace company that makes big engines and big jet engines. And big he's very ass fans. happy. Uh, yeah, well, I guess you could say they're big ass fans in a way. Yeah. Um, anyway, he uh, said that he was going to be doing a business trip coming through Atlanta, going out to LA, and then coming back through Atlanta, up back up to Cincinnati. And uh, so I said, hmm, let me see if I can maybe coordinate it so that when I need, I, I needed to. Uh, hand in a couple of items because um, next week will be my uh, last uh, day as a Delta Airlines pilot. And uh, that'll be my birthday, the 26th of December. And uh, so I I went in on Friday afternoon before everybody left the chief pilot's office and uh, handed in my ID card, my Delta ID card, and uh, my, my iPad, my EFB, uh, that they wanted back. I was kind of hoping I'd get to keep it, but they wouldn't let me keep it. Um, and uh, then they uh, said, oh, um, didn't you just have an anniversary? And I said, yeah. Oh, no, it's actually today. So the day of my uh, 35th year um, anniversary 15th. or Delta-versary uh, at Delta Airlines was that day, the 15th of December. I started in 15 December 88 and 15 December um 2023 was 35 years. So they handed me this little box. And uh, I don't know, are you showing that right now, Liz? I'm putting it up now. Okay. Um, the uh, There's the, I kind of opened up the little box there and and it's a little lapel pin with little three little wow. chips of three diamond. diamonds? Wow. Well, yeah, it must be worth a fortune, I'm, I'm thinking. Absolutely. <laughs> Got to be 35 a carrot years. there. <laughs> anyway. So I think that's I, solid gold, Jeff? No, Nick, it's not solid gold. Oh. No, it's just a cheap oh. metal, um, <laughs> gold-colored metal, <laughs> I think. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, uh, so 35 years and uh, got this um, stupid T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that is uh, – but anyway okay. – the good part about that is that uh, a couple hours later, I uh, met um, Greg Peterson coming in to gate B-23. And uh, uh, we had a nice uh, – I, I, as he came off the airplane, I said, I'm inviting you, uh, a formal uh, invitation here, to uh, join me in my 35 Delta anniversary dinner. And so we uh, went up to the – uh, went over to the B spine and had a had a nice meal at uh, Sam Adams Brew House, and uh, yeah, cheered or uh, or toasted my 35 year airline career. And, Excellent. Uh, well done. Then he went on his way up back up to Cincinnati, and I uh, drove home. And uh, as I mentioned a few times already on this show, on the 26th of December, I turn into a pumpkin, not literally. Uh, but I turned 65 years old and part 121 here in the U.S. and in other places around the world. You are you are you uh, are no longer allowed to pilot um, scheduled airliners. Uh, I could do other flying. I mentioned it in previous shows. What you know, my decision not to do that. Um, but uh, so there you go. That was my a lot more than I usually talk about. And of course, I did my normal singing as well. So. Um, there you go. So who's next? Who wants Steph to Steph had next? to step away for a minute. She'll be back. Okay. Um, Nick Camacho, would you like to, uh, tell us what you've been up to? 
Uh, yeah, I uh, I don't remember if I was on. I don't think I was on the last show, but no. Um, my uh, over the last weekend, my wife and I traveled out to California for my company Christmas party. So, yeah, we were able to uh, go out there for a few days, child free. And uh, see a bunch of our friends. Uh, obviously, go to my work party. Uh, it's it's not it's a nice thing that my company does. We have a handful of remote employees, and so they always uh, fly in the remote employees and their spouses. But um, since we lived there previously, my wife is actually you know has some friends within the spousal network of our company already. So she she enjoys going out there and seeing those friends as well as my airport friends and a bunch of our family uh, that lives in Napomo. So we made the rounds out there. Um, and outside of that, I've just been uh, at home working. We also, while we were out there, we got notification of a uh, pretty significant uh, program milestone, I guess I'd say at work. Uh, that's going to lead into next year, which is super exciting, but is also going to uh, result in a lot of work. So we're uh, getting going on that and been trying to get ahead of the eight ball a little bit there before everyone uh, kind of uh, disappears for uh, the holidays. And any news about your engine, any news about my engine, my engine is ready to go in the airplane. I was okay. trying to get it in before we went to California. And that's what I she ran, said. I ran, <laughs> family show uh and i uh, i ran out of i was about one day short and then uh we got back uh monday in the last couple of days i've been um helping my folks with a couple things and, and getting ready for um christmas we've uh, all of my siblings are descending upon uh, my folks' house, so I've been uh, helping them get ready a little bit. But uh, if everything goes to plan, I'm taking uh, tomorrow off, and uh, hopefully through the weekend we'll be able to get that thing in. But, you know, it's like uh, two steps forward, <laughs> one step back every time we do anything. So there's probably three to five days of uh, undetermined and uh, and... issues that I have to work Swearing. through that I haven't found yet. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we hope you get that in. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I hope it feels nice when it is. <laughs> Man, she's on a roll. Just couldn't leave it alone. <laughs> Captain Nick's already Captain, checked out for the holidays. Captain Nick. <laughs> well, it's well, good it's to hear. Bound you, uh, to feel nice when you've finished all that hard work. I, I'm hoping that they they had a nice selection of uh, Zinfandels there at your party. Yeah. Wine. yeah, it was actually at a yeah. wine it was at a wine bar on nope. the uh on the beachfront there in Avila. So it was very nice. And the weather nice. was tremendous. Nice. Yeah. It was a good time. It's one of my favorite grapes. Captain Nick, what you been doing? Oh, is Liz actually speaking out loud or No, I she's just saying that to us in our in our in. little ears, but <laughs> everybody everybody's listening to the podcast can hear her. <laughs> Uh, Liz, thank you for the invitation to speak next. Um, I, I've been to the Christmas Curry, which is the most amazing annual event 
that occurs uh, amongst podcasting royalty in the UK. So uh, if you'd like to play the audio, Liz, it all will come clear. Okay, or how about me? Jeff I can do it. Jeff's going to Oh, do okay. That. Jeff, off you go, mate. Yep. Here we go. Jeff, hi. This is Nick, and we're at the um, playing <laughs> the podcasting. I don't know. The we're at Spice Village, but this is the Christmas curry of all the UK podcasters that mean anything, and of course, the king amongst us. The king amongst us is Pilot Pip with his, you know, smack on the nail every week. His fantastic podcast, full of uh, interest and uh, fun. Uh, so, the first thing I'm going to do is uh, hand you over to him, and he's going to tell you about what has been happening in his world. Uh, hang on a sec, I'm just trying to untangle myself. Here we go. Hi, Pip. Oh. Hi, Nick. Uh, ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah, the UK's premier podcasts are all represented here. Uh, what's happened to ours? Well, as Al said slightly earlier, um, once our patreon fund gets down to twenty thousand dollars or so then we'll do another podcast but until then we're uh, fat dumb and happy so i'm gonna pass it on i guess bye here's adam my my nemesis my arch enemy have we started the quiz yet but hi everybody adam here is jeff coming because you just said hello to jeff um jeff is coming okay excellent fantastic okay well hello to everybody and uh, i hope everybody's getting ready for a good christmas yeah, we just had a lovely meal here at uh, Spice Village, which is quite near Heathrow, I think, relatively central to, to all of us. Um, yeah, and good, good conversation, good chat. And um, unfortunately, I'm sat opposite Pip, which was a rookie mistake. Um, I should have been down the other end of the table. But yeah, I've had a good evening so far. Hey, Jeff, this is uh, Garrett. I met with uh, Nick uh, last spring. Uh, I got a lovely uh, uh, invite by Nick to uh, come to this uh, shindig, and uh, um, I appreciate it. And Nick picked me up from the uh, from the tube station in his uh, lovely red car, and we zipped over here, and it was lovely. So I appreciate the opportunity, and I'll pass you on to uh, Matt. Hi, Jeff, from Matt from the A320 podcast. Always a pleasure to be part of uh, Airline Pilot Guy. And, uh, yeah, as the others have said, fantastic meal, good curries, good company. And, uh, unfortunately, most of us uh, being in the industry, we're in aren't drinking. Um, but those as lucky to retire as uh, Captain Nick taken advantage of not having that restriction on their life. So, yeah, Merry Christmas to everyone. And I'll hand you over to uh, the wonderful gentleman that, whose eyes I'm staring into opposite a very good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you happen to be. Captain Al here. Um, unfortunately, what you can't see, because this is a podcast, is the lengths that we've all had to go to so that Nick's recording equipment doesn't end up in the candle flame and go up in smoke. That's really been quite hilarious. So wherever you happen to be, and especially for those of you who happen to be working uh, over your festive period on Christmas Day or on the 24th if that's important to you or on New Year's Eve then we'll raise a glass to you for those of us who aren't working uh, but have a great Christmas a happy new year and a safe healthy and prosperous one ciao for now well that's great thanks everybody uh, it's been a lovely evening we've had some great food the, the restaurant is filling so before everyone starts staring at us for shouting into microphones I'm going to a close up and thank 
Al, Matt, Garrett, Adam and Pip uh, for a great evening. So nice to see you guys again. It's, uh, it doesn't happen often enough. Thanks very much indeed. Back to you in the studio, Jeff. Bye. Now, thank you, Nick. Now, I noticed that almost everybody in the photos were wearing uh, APG hats. Except Captain Oh, yeah, Nick. absolutely. They're such devotees yeah, but of Captain, the, the Captain Nick, Pilot Guy show. I how come you didn't that, have yours on? Uh I Were you believe embarrassed? I, I actually I did. I just didn't take a selfie with it on. Okay. Now I was uh, I was making good use of the uh, extra hats that you left. You're just in tired the of UK, us of, so. of having to keep those over there at your house, aren't you? You're just trying to get. You're giving them to people <laughs> on the them, street. Give them out as party yeah. favors. It was Christmas, you know. So those things I cost me twenty a bucks a piece. <laughs> well, I'm sure they're all very grateful, and they're not going to use them to. Uh, well, good. Going to misuse them is what I should be That's saying. Good. Oh, That's that good. That was great. Uh, lovely to see those guys. Uh, Al was working at five a.m. the next day, so we <laughs> didn't stay up late. So um, it was a, a really nice evening as well. And a good, good curry house too. Good food. Big portions. Very impressed. Nice. Um, anyway, that was has been my big event. That was kind of at the uh, beginning of last week. Um, other than that, it's just been preparations for Christmas. And all I can really talk about now is perhaps the artwork. Is yes, now sir. a good time? Yeah. Yes. Right. Well, we um, we had a story about someone who was trying to smuggle a pair of otters in their trousers. So, of course, Twin Otters becomes an aircraft. The uh, Twin Otter, famous. And, of course, one of the aircraft uh, that, Steph is qualified to fly and does so frequently. Uh, so we, of course, had to put a twin otter, or as they're nicknamed, a twatter, into someone's trousers, which we managed to accomplish with a little help of uh, Photoshop. And, uh, of course, in the, in the while we're discussing uh, putting otters in your trousers, we had to relate the old uh, English habit of um, people in Yorkshire putting ferrets in their trousers, which is called ferret legging. And uh, so we included a ferret uh, that was just about to dive down into its owner's trousers. And then there was another story involving a whale on a runway. If you haven't listened to the last the show, you, defi yeah. you definitely... Yeah, the the... The runway happened to be on the beach, but it was very amusing to have. It was the a whale of a story. Whale it was a on deceased whale. Exactly it exactly right. Um, so, uh, how that whale got there led me to think that perhaps it was uh, something that Douglas Adams uh, would have thought up on his amazing book *Hitchhiker's Guide to the Guide to the Galaxy*, where, due to the effects of the improbability drive. A whale and a bowl of petunias appeared in midair and fell towards the earth. Um, the uh, whale didn't recognize the earth and hoped it would be his friend. Sadly, it wasn't. And the bowl of petunias said, oh, no, not again. Um, and anyway, they, all, they both feature on this picture of the man with the twatter down his trousers on a beach. So 42. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. 42. Uh, the 42 is there it is? on the aeroplane. Uh -huh. Can you see, see 42 uh, on the aeroplane? Oh, just I didn't. On the other side of the yeah. Zoom. Uh, it's not as, it's just a, yeah. I see it. it I do see it. It's, 
And uh, 42 is, of course, Steph? The answer to life, the universe, and everything. Oh, Absolutely. Okay, as yeah. um, as <laughs> devised <laughs> by the amazing, gross, huge computer yes. that the planet Earth turns out to be. Um, so 42 is there, and there are... Uh, is the show number. You've got to find the show number. Oh, well done. Yeah, that was a, quite an easy one. I thought I put it in a tag yeah. on his trousers, five, nine, eight. So that was uh, that was fun, that one. That worked out quite well. Very nice. Excellent. Steffi, over to you. Steph, over, what have you been up to? Over to me. Sorry for um, stepping away. I may need to step away again. I promise I'm not like making up excuses not to be on the show, but um, mm -hmm. did want to congratulate uh, Captain Jeff on how many years was it with Acme? 35. 35. 35. 35 years at Acme. So congratulations. Thanks. Sorry I stepped away while you were yeah, talking about that. Job. Um, what have I been up to? I think I did um, manage to pop into the last show to give a little bit of an update on everything up to that point. So I think I'm only caught up or I'm caught up until then. I'll tell you about last weekend and this week and um, a nice week for me. Um, we, uh, the physicians at my group take about five days off around the holiday and either you take kind of the days around Christmas or the days around New Year's and we split it up so that there's coverage on um, in all the offices so this is my week to be off so I was off yesterday and I used that time to get my um, medical renewed my aviation I paid a visit to my aviation medical examiner and I'm good to go for another year with my second class medical so good stuff um, and then I kind of already alluded to last weekend um, I uh, did that uh, wingsuit first jump course. Um, you know, we're really lucky where I, I have been flying skydivers. We have a lot of world-class folks there. And um, the gentleman who runs that course is um, wingsuiting champion and speed wingsuiting and all kinds of other disciplines, um, which I'll probably mess up if I try to remember all of them. But um, excellent instruction. Um, looking forward to new challenges and trying new things. A um, couple of more days off here, so I'm just going to be uh, doing stuff around the house. I don't have any real big plans. Um, I feel like I do enough travel and other stuff throughout the year that during the holidays, sometimes I just like to, to lay low. So I'll be what? around the house kind of, I know, right? <laughs> um, yeah, just I'm going to make sure I've got um, things tidied up around here go through, uh, I can't see it because I put it deliberately off camera, but I have a giant stack of papers from the mail over the past several months that I've just been letting accumulate on my desk. So I need to get through all of that and um, yeah, just kind of reset for the new year. Very good. Mm -hmm. All right. I guess uh, fund. that uh, concludes our getting to know us now, does Steph have to leave permanently now, or can you just ask her what she's doing? I um, I can hear you, Liz. Um, no, I don't have to leave. I actually don't entirely know what's going on. I will let okay. you know if I okay. do have to. Okay. Got so, it. Thank you. Um, in the interest of letting everyone know, I am got a text from my, my father that makes me suspicious that he was involved in a motor vehicle collision, and I oh. don't have any details. So, um, But it sounds like he's okay, as far as I can tell. But it is my vehicle. Oh, which one? <laughs> it's a Subaru. Oh, no. Yeah. I have no details. But, oh, no. Um, oh, no. Well, if yeah. you need to go, just just. I, I will off. let you know. Um, okay. You know, he's he's an adult, and it sounds like he's fine. So he mm -hmm. can figure out how to manage that and 
I don't know how much assistance I can be for something that's done and done and we'll figure it out. So Okay. Well, hopefully yeah. it's just a little tiny fender bender. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. But I mean I, I was talking about it at the beginning of the show running late like traffic has just been awful and people just seem to have turned into the worst drivers ever so um most important thing is everyone's okay i hope so good all right well i think now it would be a good time for us to talk about our coffee fund jeff smith the jingle master johnny how much more coffee no thanks sings this the apg java jive I love the APG community, coffee and tea, and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh yeah, the coffee fund. We don't have quite as much as uh, the Plain Safety podcast, you know, twenty thousand and up. Uh, but we uh, we have a, we collect a little bit of money to help offset some of the costs of doing the show, buy equipment for our hosts, etc., and and the uh, occasional meetups here and there around the world and uh, a couple different ways that you can contribute to our show Uh, one is the coffee fund classic method uh, which is essentially a one basically set up for one-time donations uh, or one-offs i like to call them Uh, we do have some recurring um, contributors to the coffee fund classic method and we do appreciate all of you uh, your continued support Uh, the other way to support us financially is to become a patron via patreon.com and that's where you pledge a certain amount per episode and uh, we have a new producer warren dixon is uh is the producer level thank you very much warren for joining patreon and becoming a patron of our show and we have some feedback from warren um hopefully we'll get to uh shortly and uh, so if you want to learn more about how you can be part of this wonderful group of people, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And we will, too. Captain, incoming message. Uh, so Merle and Nick C. Who's Nick C? Uh, sent us some. So let's just say Merle sent us some feedback, uh, the littlest Air Force planes. And uh, Merle says, take a look at these little aircraft. Uh, the claimed top speed for the second C-130 is either a typo or deeply concerning. Uh, this is from uh, military.com, this first article, the Air Force's most adorable aircraft all. Every U.S. military aviation enthusiast has a favorite aircraft, whether they know it or not. Is it the ever-agile F-16 Fighting Falcon, the aggressively belligerent A-10 Thunderbolt II, the uber-expensive F-35 Lightning II, or how about the hulking C-130 Hercules or the workhorse C-17 Globemaster III? You may spend time arguing over the various capabilities of each of these mighty airframes, but there's one thing most people will agree on. No aircraft is more adorable than those that make up the Air Force's patch uh, patchwork fleet of miniature aircraft. Seriously, Aww. just look at these things. Aren't they just freaking adorable? They may not fly, but what they lack in airworthiness, they almost certainly make up for in preciousness. And we hope in recruiting value, as that's how they're often, uh, most often deployed around the United States. Let's take a look at these dainty aircraft, shall we? Who added that in there? <laughs> 
did. Nick. That Anderson. was a BD ten, wasn't it? Did you did that you put that in there? <laughs> no, I didn't, but I it's a very sweet little airplane. It didn't just say dainty. Um, someone added a little extra to that word. Somebody uh, added the uh, dash. Uh, yeah, that's the opposite end that. of the spectrum from where uh, Greg used to work. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, there's a. I don't know what you guys are showing right now on the uh, on that you're showing. It's the C one. Oh, okay. Uh, sorry, the C seventeen. Well, the this first part of the article. I'm not going to read the entire thing. We'll have it in the show notes for you. As the uh, the mini C one thirty, and uh, now when we say mini, I mean these are there big enough for people to actually climb inside and uh you know so i'm actually really sad that i missed this event this year now but I'll, i'm sure you'll get to what it oh really was. well the thing that was concerning so, and, and merle mentioned in his um in his feedback was uh this article talks about the um this the mini one of the mini c-130s <laughs> the operated by kentucky air national guards 123rd airlift wing um it can hit speeds of up to 120 miles per hour <laughs> Wow. wow. Yeah, that's and he that's said, a typo. If you go down to the, yeah, if you go down a, to that little segment below it, yeah. right? I put that so in there. Powered actually. by a twenty-seven horsepower motor and can reach yeah, speeds of twenty a, miles an hour. So I was, one, I was, I was kind of skeptical was about the one twenty, and so I did my own research and found this article uh, from the one twenty-third airlift wing regarding this mini C one thirty. And yes, as Nick Camacho just mentioned, gotcha. it's powered by a twenty-seven horsepower gasoline motor. It can reach up speeds up to. 20 miles per hour, not 120. Oh, yeah. I suppose it could down. reach 120. It just depends on how steep the grade is. <laughs> yeah, what's the uh, terminal velocity uh, stuff? Yeah. Probably, probably if you, yeah, if you, um, you know, put it on the back of an actual C-130, it yeah. might reach 120 <laughs> miles an hour. C-17. <laughs> yeah, and then. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we're showing some more. So I alluded to, I guess it wasn't this images. year, but I guess they've, um, the, one of the mini C-130s operated by the North Carolina Air National Guard makes appearances at the, um, runway 5k at the Charlotte oh, nice. Douglas International Airport. That's um, a real airplane right there. there. Year, but. That one that we were watching or seeing <laughs> that is, right now. The that's... BD is a real airplane. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, the jet powered version was brilliant. I yeah. loved it. I think, is that the jet powered version? It looks like it is. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The BD-5 Jet, or J, I think, is the uh, designation on it. And uh, it is a mini airplane, but it's a real one. Uh, it actually flies. And it goes pretty fast, probably faster than 120. I would imagine probably over 200 miles an hour. Um, yeah, continue, Liz, if you have any more, or is that yep. it? Okay. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I've gone through them all okay. a few times. Um, let me uh, play a little bit of um, video then from SDS. Uh, this is talking about the first flight of the B-29 replica. Um, and let's see if there's any audio here. So this is similar to the Bally bomber that was at Oshkosh uh, a couple times in the last four or five years. Like a scaled real airplane thing again. Is, looks pretty big. It I mean, looks like an RC airplane right here. Yeah. But it's a real it airplane. There's a dude oh, in the nose. Yeah. No way. Operating this okay. airplane. Oh, is this the one that has the Honda engines? Yeah. Yeah. Four Honda engines. Wow. Look at that. Taking off from a grass airfield. Yeah, that's pretty darn big. I mean, what, what would you imagine the uh, the wingspan on that is probably 40, 50 feet, maybe, or more? 
Yeah, uh, let's see. 50 feet. Yep. At 35% okay. scale, it's about 35 feet long with a wingspan of almost 50 feet. Powered by wow. four Honda Fit automotive engines with belt reduction drives to the propellers. Nice. So this video is showing this thing going, taking off, uh, going, making a, um, a left downwind, left base, and now is on final uh, back again. It's probably going to do a little bit of a flyby. That's amazing. That's a that's a cool cool airplane. Great project. Um, yep. And I think that this um, next um, one that I'm going to add to the stage, this next video also. Um, is about uh, this 35% scale B29 and uh, showing a little bit of the manufacturer uh, manufacturing process in somebody's shop area, um, basement maybe, I don't know. It's, well, it's probably not a basement because you wouldn't want to build like a, something a down there. shop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want to be able to open it up and take it out. There are the uh, Honda Fit engines. That's just amazing. I wonder how long it took them to uh, construct this thing. Wow. Pretty cool. Cool. All right. Well, we're going to have a link to all the uh, articles and images and videos in our show notes if you want to dive into that. Thank you, Merle, for sending in that feedback. We do appreciate it. Anything else to say, Camacho, before we move on to anything else? Yeah. That's an interesting comment from Tim Van Ram. I didn't put it up, but. Uh, Tim Van Ram and our live audience, kind of ironic. Yeah, we don't hear you, um, Camacho. Uh, kind of ironic to have Japanese engines in a B-29 as Colonel Tibbetts uh, playing the Enola Gay was a B-29. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you forgot a, uh, an apostrophe there, um, Tim. That's minus <laughs> 10. Um <laughs> Okay. Uh, now, Camacho, do you want? Did you want to say anything? We saw your mouth moving, but we didn't hear anything. No, I just said Tim Van Ram made a made a comment. Uh, okay. Yeah, he put up Tim's comment. This was sent in to us from Ernie, and he says, "Hi, Jeff and APG crew. This uh, the news article about the close call at JFK brought back some memories of a literal cross country flight at my son's Piper Cherokee 180." We were following the Pacific Coast transitioning through KSFO's Class B airspace. At the point where it got interesting, we were south of San Francisco International heading north, talking to the tower and assigned 3,500 feet. The tower launched a China-based A380 on one of its west-facing runways and cleared them to 3,000. Okay. Um, so let's see. Shall I read any more? Do I need to play the video? Let's see. Uh, he says, I probably should mention that earlier in the day while passing through the Los Angeles area, we listened for about 10 to 10 or 15 minutes while the approach controller talked with an English as a second language pilot, trying to determine where they were and where they intended to go next. That process required a controller change because the first one was unsuccessful. Anyway, I think this experience played a role in reducing our confidence in what was about to play out. It turns out A380s climb fairly briskly and cover a lot of ground as well. At 239 feet long, it has a 262-foot wingspan, spans 79 feet with the gear down, or stands 79 feet with the gear down. The wingspan was more than half the assigned spacing. They only had 500-foot spacing. 
Both airframes stick up and down from those assigned levels, and the altimeters, while sensitive, are imprecise. We looked out the uh, out of the Cherokee's window at the plane climbing toward us, a bit unsure that instructions would be followed. This view of 500-foot vertical spacing raised our excitement level a bit. It turned out we were both flying our assigned and correct flight paths. So here we go. We're going to go ahead and play this. And now you get to see what Earl saw looking out of the uh, uh, of the Piper 180. Okay, right wing. You see the 380 in the background just above the wingtip. Yep. There he is, just off of uh, one of the two eights. Yeah, I'd be getting nervous at this point. Wow. Wow. That's close. That's what 500 feet looks like, people. <laughs> 500 feet with a very, very, very large aircraft. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. As he mentions, you know, the, the wingspan of the thing is like you know, half of that 500 feet that vertical separation. Feet, yeah. um, anyway, uh, very interesting. I'm glad you uh, had some video of that, Ernie. That was uh, pretty amazing. He said, I think the pilot calling out the situation with the two planes at JFK, which were likely to eventually converge during landing, was both appropriate and warranted. I took, my, I took a video of my experience that technically doesn't show a close call, that might help listeners appreciate the views. That's what we just watched. So we'll have this in the show notes if you want to watch this uh, this this uh, video that Ernie uh, did, and uh, it was a definitely an eye opener for sure. Thanks, Ernie. Next one is from Robert, not Robert Tucker, Robert in Tucker, Georgia. He says. Uh, Please see attached and congratulations on 600 episodes. And he's got a video as well. Um, so the first item that he uh, sent in was this uh, picture of um, a uh, what do they what do, what do we call these? Uh, like a ward uh, employee award notification cards thing? or recognition cards. It says uh, this uh, at the top says Delta Sky Miles. Thank you, Captain Jeff. Uh, you went above and beyond today for, and then he put, for 600 episodes. <laughs> and then he says, now, when are you finally retiring? And he puts that in uh, in uh, quotation marks. And uh, so uh, this thing goes on to say, uh, congrats, someone has thanked you for a job well done. Enjoy 500 rewards points. Yay. So thank you very much, Robert, for that. And uh, the uh, second item that Robert sent in uh, was... Um, a YouTube video of a Concord, um, British Airways Concord cabin crew member interview. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if I actually uh, got the video for that. I think he was just suggesting it was interesting. I don't yeah. know if you need to play it. Um, okay, let me just double check, make sure it's not in there somewhere. Uh, nope, it's not in there. So, um, Robert's uh, sharing this with all of us, the uh, crew and community. He said, I thought I would share this with you if you haven't seen it. Around the 15.00 uh, timestamp, Ms. Reynolds, the, uh, the former uh, BA cabin crew member, uh, discusses the feeling she always noticed when going supersonic in flight. 
happy holidays to everyone and congratulations on the upcoming episode 600. I did mean to actual, actually uh, clip this, uh, Liz, but I just forgot. Um, but in it, I, I did watch this and she was the question the interviewer asked her was, you know, what was it like? What was the feeling of going supersonic? And so she described uh, the point at which they advanced the power into uh, reheat uh, or afterburner, we call it over here in the U.S., uh, where it um, you know puts out a lot more thrust and it pushes the airplane into the supersonic realm. And she said that she could feel like it was like a feeling in your seat where you could kind of feel a little bit of a slight pressure in your lower back where the seat is you're you're doing that little bit of burst of uh, acceleration there and um I, what I was going to say about that and I think that Captain Nick would probably agree because he's the one that spent uh, of any of us here on the crew uh he spent um, an, a very very long period of time in the supersonic realm compared to my one flight in the T38 <laughs> that was all the one and only time I ever went supersonic uh but I would bet that the the sensation that she is describing, Nick, is probably not the supersonic flight aspect of it, but just the the engines going into reheat. Uh, yes, yeah, just the increase in thrust. So uh, the the feeling of going uh, supersonic is is it's a complete non-event. I mean, uh, the aircraft is designed to do it. There's no reaction from the air aircraft. There's no real change in feel, feel until you are fully supersonic. Um, it's just a, a flicker on the Mach meter as it uh, goes right up to the to Mach one. And then as the shockwave passes uh, the pitot tube, then it usually flicks just above Mach 1, and that's it, you're supersonic. You, the only time you have to be a little bit, you, you actually notice a, uh, an actual physical feeling is if you're turning hard when you're supersonic and you cub some subsonic, the movement of the center of pressure uh, can cause the airplane to tuck. It can uh, increase its... Uh, effective flight control input. So if you're pulling quite hard, uh, the airplane's turning, and as you come subsonic, it'll turn much harder, which you have to be careful because you can over-G the airplane at that point. That's about the only physical feeling you're going to have. That I, You know what kind of is, in my mind, somewhat similar, um, and especially um, pronounced on the uh, Boeing 727, is that if you're in a if you're in a turn and you extend the um, um, extend the speed brakes, I think, yeah, extend the speed brakes a little bit, it increases the roll rate. So if you happen to be like in rolling and then you pull the uh, the speed brakes out, it'll just accelerate the rate that you're turning. And so you had to be cognizant of the fact that uh, that was going to occur. And uh, it takes a couple of times of actually experiencing it to really understand how significant yeah, a difference it is. No, you 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 learn to react and uh, to compensate for it, but uh, it's just the movement of center of pressure um, okay. when you are supersonic to subsonic. How many G's can you pull in uh, supersonic flight? Does it depend? Does it, does it depend on the uh, jet? Uh, no, it depends on the effectiveness of the tailplane because once you're supersonic, uh, you can put the stick usually back into your guts and you won't get much more than four or five Gs because uh, the tailplane has become less effective. Um, so, um, you know, uh, hmm. and the same in the, same in the Phantom uh, F-18 overall and 
tornado come to that. They're, they're all very similar in their handling. And the other thing is when you're supersonic, there is no buffet. You know, you normally get a separation of airflow because uh-huh. it's buffet on the airframe when you're subsonic. And if you're turning hard, you usually get an increase in buffet. When you're supersonic, the airflow is absolutely solidly adhered to the airframe and um, there is no buffet. So it's just like going around on rails. It's the smoothest flight you'll have ever had. Wow. All right. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your experience with supersonic flight, Nick. All right. Yeah, welcome. A uh, video before, from Ray Davis now, Jeff. Another before video. we move on, can I yeah. can I bring us back up to 50%? Uh-oh. Previous, yeah. Uh-oh. yeah we have to go back to Ernie. No, we didn't. Well, uh, we didn't screw it up. Not really, except we oh. just weren't paying too much attention. Um, actually, um, Ludger in our audience caught it. Um, if you go back to Ernie's um, feedback since we showed that video, um, mm-hmm. that is a two-engined aircraft in the video. Um, and oh, Yes. So, oh, so uh, he actually he actually titled his video "Boeing Triple Seven Departing he did. SFO." That's true. The title was wrong. That's so, what I thought too. Yeah. And then I was a little confused when I was reading it. He said A three eighty. I didn't watch the video very and, closely, and, and then I, I went back and watched yeah, it again. Yeah, I wasn't really yes. paying there was close a video? attention either. Yeah, there was a video. <laughs> it was in my it was in my little tiny inset screen. That's my excuse. But um, you didn't joking. see the uh, yeah. video, Nick? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I did, but uh, I, I thought a bit sick. It made me feel a bit queasy, <laughs> so I looked away. <laughs> I don't want to embarrass Ernie, but we'll just you know. So we're so we're all on par. Okay, so I guess we're now nah, well done to our chat room. I, for, I'd say Ernie was mostly responsible for being below fifty percent on that one, <laughs> but I guess we're yep. we're not let off the hook. We're we compli- we were complicit. Yeah, yeah, we we, we should have been we, paying better attention for sure. Ernie, Ernie, you're making us look bad, man. Yeah. It's so not just, hard, I know, but it's still <laughs> not really ideal. Isn't. We're just coming up on the two and a half hour mark, guys. In three what? minutes, two and a half hours. We're we're coming up on two and a half hours. Uh, I want I want more time. Okay, um, let's see. That's what all old people say. <laughs> yeah, please give me some more time. I'm not ready to go yet. Uh, this piece of feedback from. Ray Davis, or from Down Under. He's been with us for quite some time. Good day, folks. It's been a long time. Hope that you're all doing well. I thought that this may interest you. The Historical Aircraft Restoration Society, also known as HARS, H-A-R-S, has finally taken to the sky on Friday morning, 8th of December, in their replica Fokker FV-11B, named the Southern Cross, which the original was flown by Sir Charles Kingford Smith from the 1920s. You know and 30s. why they, it was named Southern Cross? Um, no, the uh, constellation. Kingford Smith was notoriously short-tempered, a very angry man. So, oh. and because it was in Australia, which is south of the equator, it was called Southern Cross. So, it because was a play he's, on the word cross. Because he's a, a his cross. Um, Attitude. He's, he was. Yeah. He's a cross yeah, individual. Attitude. Yeah, very, very cross man. You can yeah, never tell if indeed. Nick's doing a bit or if he's being serious. <laughs> I'm not sure. It's because it had nothing to do with the uh, stars. That, the constellation. Uh, the constellation that gives you the south pointing star in the southern hemisphere. Because we have the north star in the northern hemisphere and the southern right, cross. Indeed, in the southern. you can't see that in Australia. So you, you have a southern cross. No. Oh, I see. You can't see the North Star in Australia. I see okay. you have a Southern Cross, which goes points at a 
the an equivalent. So the part about stuff. him being cross, you just made up, didn't you? He was a bit. <laughs> yeah, he was doing a bit. I okay. don't know. I might, he might have been. He, you're you're, you're on it, Camacho. I thought he was actually being serious. <laughs> well, I, I should know better than that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the um, getting back to this uh, from Ray. Sorry, Ray. Uh, the replica suffered uh, an undercarriage failure in May 2002, followed by wing and engine damage as it landed at Parafield Airport in Adelaide. After a short flight along the south coast, uh, Victor Hotel Uniform Sierra Uniform returned to Shell Harbor Airport to tarmac full of to a tarmac full of happy volunteers. I hope that you enjoy the video attached. Take care, take care, kindest regards, Ray Davis. I'm having trouble speaking all of a sudden. Well, not all of a sudden. Had this problem for quite some time, actually. Anyway, so the Here video is still landing. running and watching the, the Southern Cross uh, come in for landing. Very nice. Uh, rolled it on. <laughs> yeah. okay. Three times. A couple, a couple of roll-ons. <laughs> yeah, well, they all count, don't they? I'm not judging. Yeah, you can log all three of those, I think. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Ray. Thanks, Ray. Appreciate it. Good to hear from you. It's been, been a while. He's a long time listener of uh, the airline pilot guy show indeed and so that uh, airplane has see. uh right engines which i thought was interesting no left engines oh really huh no left <laughs> engines right, right engine no 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 left no. <laughs> one in the okay. middle one on the right <laughs> right uh right as in like the Wright brothers right I aircraft know. company i'm trying to do some shtick now because captain Mike encouraged me <laughs> oh, 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 oh. i'm not taking responsibility for that <laughs> uh let's see okay this piece of feedback is from a good our good friend of the apg uh aunt pruitt a uh a podcaster himself uh, many uh things that he podcasts on uh one of the most or uh, uh, famous of all of them is uh, Hop, which is hands-on photography. And uh, he just recently sadly lost his um, position with uh, the Twit Podcasting Network and is looking uh, uh, at what uh, to do um, next in the next chapter of his uh, career. And uh, he sent us some audio feedback. Hey there, Miss Liz, Dr. Steph. Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, no old pilot, uh, the other Captain Nick, uh, uh okay, hello, APG crew. There we go. <laughs> I can't easy. remember everyone's names. <laughs> Hope y'all doing well. I'm unbelievable as always. I wanted to send in a question. Um, my name is Ant, and I am a fairly loyal listener and listen to the shows as often as I can. And I've always enjoyed the information that's shared as well as the entertainment value that comes along with it. So I wanted to ask this question because it's pretty serious to me anyway. And I'm sure you've been asked this question before over the <laughs> gazillion of episodes you've done. But uh, I can't say I went back to look at your previous episodes to, to see if this question was answered. But anyway, I'm going to stop rambling. I wanted to ask about pilot school. Um, recently, I have um, been in a position where my my job laid me off. It's unfortunate. Stuff happens. Business is business. I get it, you know. But 
in the meantime, I needed to figure out, okay, what's the next step as far as my career path goes. And some of you know that I am a photographer and yeah, I could dive back into doing that more for people here in the area in Sonoma County. But I can't say that I'm optimistic about it because I've been burned a couple times out here so far. Um, so I'm thinking if I'm going to do the photography thing, it will be more so with dealing with brands and stuff like that, product photography and whatnot. But anyway, I was having the thought of pilot school. About 10 years ago, I was interested in getting into pilot school, but at the time, it just wasn't ideal. Uh, first off, because my, my boys, hard-headed boys, they were too young. And from what I knew about pilot school back then, was um, it was going to take a whole lot of time and a whole lot of time away. And I personally just didn't believe in doing that. Um, as a father of two black boys, I believe that dad needs to be around. So I always said, once they got older, I would consider it um, looking at pilot school. So now it's been at least 10 years or so, and it's right around the time that I was thinking about, you know, getting into pilot school if it was an option for me. So I started looking briefly, um, you know, a day or so after I got my walking papers, if you will. And um, what I saw again was, yes, this is going to take a lot of time and it could potentially take a lot of money. So thinking about that, I said, okay, well, the time thing I can sort of deal with. My boys are gone. I got one that's in college, so he could care less what I'm doing. And I got one that I'm trying to graduate from high school so he can go off to college and move on to that next phase in life as well. So they probably are not going to need me around as often. But in this, at the same time, I still got to pay bills. You know, this, I don't know if y'all know anything about California real estate. Not that I own the place that we live in, but ain't nothing cheap out here. So the rent still needs to be paid. The utilities still need to be paid. I need to eat. Queen Pruitt needs to eat. And yes, every now and then I like to have a daggum beer. So, yeah, I had to consider, you know, is this going to be a feasible option as well? So your thoughts first. Are there any particular schools uh, that you all would uh, would recommend that I should look into and probably sit down for an interview. Secondly, uh, am I making any sense when it comes to thinking about, all right, this is probably going to take me about two years to complete. Uh, there's also the huge cost in it because it's almost like paying for college from my understanding. So it's not going to be cheap. So that means paying back debt. And I've heard that you could even somehow put towards some of your debt, putting in uh, time to, to um, like help out at the school, whether you're training the new, the new students that's coming in or, you know, something along those lines, but maybe you all can clear it up. Uh, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you. Um, you're doing the show. And also I want to say thank you to all of you, the APG crew for the support that you provided me. Um, over the last couple of years with my show and with the recent news of my layoff, I really do appreciate everything. Seriously. It, it, 
it means a lot. And um, <laughs> it was quite moving. But yeah, thank you all for your time. God bless. And um, yeah, here's to a unbelievable 2024. By the way, again, congratulations to you, Captain uh, Jeff, for your air quotes <laughs> retirement, because um, I'm not sure what time you get this or when you get this, but I think you're still quote retired and not officially retired. <laughs> All right. This is Ant Pruitt. Y'all take care. Peace. Thanks, Ant. And that proves that he's actually listening to our show because he's heard me talk about, hey, I'm kind of not really officially retired, quote retired, but hey, in just a few days, I'll be actually really technically and officially retired. Um, and so we, we, we love you so much. We are, we were so sad to hear about, uh, the layoffs over at twit and, uh, that you were amongst those that were uh, cut and, uh, and we, and we know that, um, you'll, you'll get back up on your feet uh, quickly and, and, uh, be just tearing it up out there. Um, as far as his idea of going to, uh, pilot training and, uh, making, you know, flying airplanes, a career path for him. Um, do you all know exactly how, I mean, he didn't mention in his feedback how old he is, but I'm guessing probably around 40 in his early forties. Um, uh, but you know, that age does. Uh, so I've, I've met Ant in person. I actually don't know how old he is, but mm -hmm. I mean, if you're anywhere under the age of 60, you could make it happen like timeline wise. It just depends on, you know, how much time you wanted to put into flying to get all of the requisite ratings and then experience on top of that time-wise um, if you're going to get into doing some sort of flying job. And that's, there's a lot of different things in there, right? Like it's, if you want to fly airliners, that's that 1500 hours. But if you're just looking to do um, something like what I do or something on the side or just fly for fun, um, then that's a very different question that he we're answering pay the bills, yeah i think he was um, looking for something that will pay the bills yeah yeah so there's still a lot of options there in what can pay bills and different time requirements mm -hmm. um step one though is the same for everybody um go and take a discovery flight make sure that it's something that you actually enjoy doing um you know there's a lot uh, i don't know i can't speak much to flight schools in california um, but there's a couple different pathways towards doing that in, in the United States. There's um, flight school under Part 61 regulations and then under Part 141. Um, just my simplified way of explaining that is Part 61 is like your homeschooling option and Part 141 is a much more structured in-class um, going all the time. That's going to be your full-time job is to do school and flight training and like a formal curriculum kind of a, a formal curriculum. Um, they come with slightly different our requirements, which are actually kind of negligible, and most people are going to do more than that anyway to get to their ratings and certificates. Um, some of it comes down to how you learn best and what your resources are. Um, I did all of my private pilot training um, while I was um, working full time. So, uh, and I, I happened to um, get into flying through a friend who was a flight instructor. So, doing Part 61 was kind of a no brainer for me. I could. Um, fly with the instructor when it worked out for our mutual schedules. And, um, you know, he knew quite a bit about my background and learning style already. So it was easy to come up with a individualized study plan for all the ground school portion of things. Um, but, you know, if you have a chunk of 
time that you're able to just set aside and work on getting through ratings, then you may want to look at um, a school that's 141 accredited so you can just have more of a structured curriculum and, and start, you know, hammering away at requirements and hours. Yeah. I think the two things that are going to be the toughest obstacle, not the age, uh, the time and the money to do this. So, I mean, if he, I, I don't know if you know this answer or not, maybe Camacho does. If, if he said, okay, next week, or let's say January 1st, or obviously not the first, but you know, the beginning of the year, I'm going to enroll in one of these part 141 schools or one of these things where, you know, we're going to give you private, uh, instrument, multi-engine, commercial, commercial multi, yep. All those things. Instructor. Yep. So first of all, the t- time, if, if you devote like 100% of your time to one of those kind of schools, you could probably get all those. How, how long would it take for, for somebody to get all those ratings? I know people who have gotten all of those ratings in under a year. Wow. That, that's really pretty fast. intense. It's a lot of flying. It's a lot of time. Okay. Um, and then typically what happens is then you sign on with the school to be an instructor there if you want to continue building right. time by instructing. Um, it's not necessarily, it depends on the school. There's a lot of different types of structures out there. So you have to know who you're talking to, but, um, and what their setup is. But, um, a lot of folks do that because then it's, you've earned those ratings as an instructor. It's very easy just to segue into, um, being an instructor. And then some of that comes down, how much you fly ends up coming down to location, student volume, your willingness to, you know, put in a lot of unusual hours potentially with instructing, um, weather, you know, there's certain parts of the country that might be better for doing that than others. Um, some folks end up getting all those ratings, they end up somewhere around, you know, 300 hours or so, and then they decide to do something totally different to build the rest of their time. And there's all kinds of things out there. Um, it just, it just depends. There's so many variables. And the money would be definitely something north of a hundred thousand, right? Yeah. If you're if you're gonna do a, a structured one forty one school and go through all of your ratings in a short period of time, yes. Okay. Just yeah, kind of so laying I, it out there for everybody listening yeah. to, to to know when we say a lot of money, this is what we mean. Go we're ahead. We're talking six Come figures on. worth of debt, yeah. yeah. I was just gonna say, so I I just looked up ATP schools or ATP okay. flight schools, which is one of the prominent uh part 141 schools and they have locations all through the country and their information page says uh it takes seven months starting from zero time or five months starting with a private pilot license and it costs one hundred and five thousand dollars with no private pilots certificate or eighty four thousand dollars with credit for the private uh plus three thousand dollars in california (laughs) (laughs) and i don't know if that includes like your room and board as well, or if that's just the tuition, basically. I bet it sure. doesn't. But just include that. probably I, I think that's not just factory. Yeah, that's just tuition. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Maine Marin brings up a great point. Um, before you start flying, good idea to go get your um, uh, your medical certificate done because if there's something that's going to hold you up there, that might be something you want to know before you um, outlay a lot of money. A class one, right? And any any good, well, if you want to fly professionally for airlines, then, you know, there's always some debate on that. Um, you would want to know if there was anything that's going to hold you up from getting a class one certificate. So certainly those things can change over time. Um, if you're not looking to do something where you might need a class one certificate, um, then you probably just want to start with whatever you need. 
Tanya's got a question. Tanya says, uh, are in our live audience, are there any regionals that have a, quote, will train you program? So there's um, quite a few airlines now that have pathway programs, and I don't know all the details on those, but typically that it's that you go to one of their affiliated flight schools. And then upon completion of that, there's a pathway through being um, a CFI for the school and building your hours that way that will then get you uh, usually a conditional job offer with that airline like an, upon completion of all. In our new segment, like we talked about mm-hmm. the Diamond DA-40 uh, yep. Lift from Academy. Lift Academy, which is one of those kind of programs that uh, I think it's Republic, I believe, uh, runs Lift Academy. I think so, yeah. So and, Republic has one, United has Aviate. Um, there, there's a handful of them out there. Mm-hmm. But it's typically that you're at an affiliated school and someone might correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you're at an affiliated school. Um, you go through the program that makes you a kind of a cadet in their system. And then upon completion of requirements, then kind of without all the formal interview process, because they already know who you are, they will grant you that conditional job offer. Yeah. Southwest has one called 225. Yeah. There's, something. there's a number of them. Yeah. JetBlue has one, I think. Um, yeah. And, and if there's any time in history that is just ripe for getting into this world of professional flying. It's now. Uh, it still is. And I'm not sure how long that'll be, but it'll probably yeah. be for some it's, time. Hiring has slowed down a little bit, but it's has not it? going to stop anytime soon. Yeah. Okay. It's not going to stop. Uh, there's kind of just been a shift where, um, especially regionals, got very inundated with first officers and lost all of their more senior um, folks to. Uh, more legacy type airlines and then kind of had this backlog of lots of first officers, no captains, and just trying to kind of smooth all that out. But that's just stuff that's going to work its way through the pipeline. So it's still a good time. I've heard there's some regionals out there hiring people directly as captains. Um, they are, and they're offering a lot of money if you yeah. plan on sticking around with them for a while. Uh, in fact, some of these airlines, even majors, are so desperate they'll actually hire air traffic controllers. That's what I've heard. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I'm just trying to get back well, at it's her. only from some towers. Not every tower is Can you believe those guys? Not only do they think they can cover the air traffic control better than us, but now they're stepping right into the airline pilot room, too. <laughs> Stay in your lane. Well, you know, we're one of the better podcasts out there. The, the guy didn't say the best. <laughs> Not for long. Not for long. If people keep well, approaching us. Well, it doesn't matter. They've, they've, been, they've been the best. So we're just one of the best. I know. We're just we're one. Best. One of many. <laughs> anyway, I just had to I had to pimp him a little bit. Um, yeah. Uh, RH. So I have a couple of comments. Doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he mentioned that his kids are going to be out of the house soon. And I think that's uh, an important uh, piece of information in his equation. You know, if he's... Uh, and I, I don't know any of the background on, on him or his wife, but, you know, if that like opens up, it sounds like it opens up the capability for him to be able to travel and, and do things, uh, you know, be gone for longer periods of time. Um, that's, that's advantageous to him. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think the, I don't know how uh, salary scales are going to change in the next, uh, you know, I, just, you know, taking a wild guess if he's, 45 or a person who's 45, right? They basically have 20 years to, um, to fly for a 121. Um, so there is some level of 
algebra that you can do from just a, a mathematical standpoint, right? You can go out and do research and say, it's going to cost me X amount of dollars to get all the training that I need to get. And then once I spend that much money, I can make approximately this much money a year for 20 years. Um, well, it'll take him a couple of years to do the training. So, you know, factor all that in, but you should be able to make a, uh, reasonably educated mathematical guess at how all the pay stuff works out. Um, but there are, you know, there are ancillary factors like being away from home or where you're based and that sort of thing. Um, but you know, another thing is if, if you're interested in it and both your boys are out of the house, uh, it might be worth looking at relocating if you're, whatever your wife's profession would allow it, you know, cause if you're looking at, you know, a 10 to 12 month training cycle, just to get to the point where you can make money with your pilot's license. And then probably a couple of years of time building before you can get in with a, a regional carrier. Um, if you're not tied to the Bay area, uh, that might be one way to make it more feasible is to, you know, relocate to an area where cost of living is much more, um, is much lower. Uh, additionally, if you go somewhere like Arizona, I think that you're basically, if you go anywhere, but the Bay area, I think the training will be a lot easier because you'll be able to fly a lot more often. You know, the a lot of, gonna be much more favorable. yeah. When you look at the training volume, uh, there's a huge training volume in both Arizona and Florida, and that's because they can run 10 hours a day, 365 days a year, whereas places like San Francisco and in the north, you're hampered for large portions of the year with uh, weather. So I think those are a couple of additional aspects to look at. Yeah. No, great points. So. So. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of options out there. There's an overwhelming amount of information on the internet, um, but I think the stuff that we kind of just went through briefly in the last few minutes are kind of the the highlights of things to really consider and then figure out what works best for you. Yeah, but if, but if you're so, asking if it's possible, the airlines used possible. to not hire anybody right over the age of what what like thirty 40 or fifty. <laughs> yeah, thirty. And now they're sending out. <laughs> Now they're sending oh, no, there's, out there's people, in their, people that are like 58 years old. and will have, There's people mm -hmm. in in new higher classes going in as first officers over the age of 60. Yeah. Second careers, third yeah. careers. Yeah. And they only have a couple of years there. I guess they're kind of hoping that they'll up the age to 67 or maybe even more in the future. Maybe, but you know what? At the end of the day, they need folks to, to fly. And yeah. you know what? If you're going to be here for five years, but you're with our company for five years and we're not going to lose you after six months to somewhere else, that's, that's great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. All right, Ant. We're uh, we're all in there with you, and uh, you know our best wishes and prayers are being sent your way. And we hope that uh, well, if you have any more questions, maybe something specific we didn't cover, uh, please don't hesitate to send us some more feedback. All right, um, let's go to number twelve, and <laughs> um, things that in the back channel are not going well. Um, <laughs> So uh, let's go to uh, number 12, feedback from Warren, one of our, our, our newest um, Patreon or a patron at Patreon. Um, hi, APG crew. I've recently joined your Patreon again after a four-year hiatus, which I'll get to in a minute. But, I, but first, I have a question for Captain Nick. Did you ever fly the A340 from Heathrow to, jo to Johannesburg? And if so, did you fly that route on 15 August 2001? That's pretty specific. If so, 
you may be the reason that I wanted to become an airline pilot. <laughs> well, that's pretty obvious. No, because if I had flown, you'd probably <laughs> be going, no, this is the last thing I ever want to do. Uh, I, I would love to look into my logbook and tell you, but during that period, my I had an electronic logbook, and uh, all of a sudden, um, an iOS update um, and the app um, refused to talk to each other. And uh, I had done the iOS update. I could no longer access the app, so I lost about three years of flying now the company had my details so that was fine but i didn't have a personal record so that encompasses that period it might very well have been me but uh, you would have heard my dulcet tones over the pa and unless you were struck by how eloquent and handsome i sounded it was probably one of the other gits that uh, often flies so i you know Tell us I, I how you really feel on. about them. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Um, he continues, I was born in South Africa, but my family moved back to the UK when I was young. And the August 2001 flight was my first time flying back to South Africa on the Virgin A340. And that's when I decided that I wanted to be a pilot at the grand old age of 11. Fast forward. Oh God. <laughs> I'm feeling so old now. <laughs> oh, yeah. you, well, you I think all to, of us didn't have to say that, did you, Warren? <laughs> uh, fast forward a few years, and I was using APG to accompany me on my long weekly drives from my home in Dorset to uh, my flying school in London, and I was contributing to the coffee fund. Uh, we thank you for that. Good By man. the time I passed all my flight tests, COVID had kicked in. And the industry had shut down with the media telling me I would never recover and we would never fly again. <laughs> it's at this point that I decided to take a break from aviation and APG as any reference to aviation just depressed me and my very unhealthy, unhealthy mm -hmm. bank so sad balance. To hear that. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. However, good news, I'm happy to say that I didn't give up completely. And in early January 2024, I will start my first airline pilot flying job. Excuse me. My first airline pilot wow. job flying the Embraer 190 out of uh, London City Airport. So, yeah, it just goes to show the media can't predict <laughs> the future. Who knew? <laughs> Yay. Love the show, Warren says. Great job. Great Awesome. Job. Great news, well Warren. And thanks for re-upping as a producer uh, patron uh, on patreon.com we do appreciate that um, London wow. City is a challenging airport to fly in and out so I you know take my hat off to you my uh, father Christmas hat off to you absolutely cool. so we're going to do so two more everyone um, we're past the three hour mark just so you know Yep, we're past the three-hour mark, but that's okay. I told Liz, you know, we only had a little over two hours last week, so we're going a little bit long on this one. This is our special Christmas gift to you all. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Merry so, Christmas. Yeah. We're going to go uh, do 14 and 15, and then we'll wrap it up. What do you think? Um, yeah, sounds good. All right. So this from Dave, and he says, I wanted to give you guys credit. As a longtime listener, I have adopted your turn of phrase at my day job, which is supply chain management logistics. I have a Mexico move that has to deliver Friday morning because, you know, merry effing Christmas and all that jazz. Uh, it's been one challenge after another, and just when I think this full truckload is on track to deliver, some other issues come up. 
I said to a coworker, I have a really bad feeling about this. The Funyuns are starting to get in line here, and I don't like it. <laughs> and then I then had to explain what the heck that meant. Instead of coming across as kind of cool and witty, she looked at me like I was a total nerd and chuckled and said, All righty then. Nerd alert! So thanks. Happy holidays, Dave. <laughs> that just wanted to do that nice and quick one. That was <laughs> funny. We're yeah, having that kind of a, a negative influence on people out there. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> Made well, him look like a nerd. negative. Maybe. <laughs> All righty yeah. then. Um, and then uh, finally, uh, this from another Dave or David, David Lieb, who is in our live audience. And he said, uh, this is some audio feedback. So I'm going to go ahead and just hit play and see what happens. Greetings, APG crew and community. This is David Lieb coming to you from my new residence about 20 plus miles south of Boston, Massachusetts, USA. So I just wanted to send in something really quick to wish our friend Captain Jeff, a very happy retirement. What a career. I know it's coming up in just a few days, so I wanted to get this in. I think there's also a milestone episode um, show coming up as well because I believe the last show I just listened to and I am up to date is 598. Hmm. Anyway, I hope all is well with everyone on the crew and the community. I have been very busy this year doing a lot of things, a lot of music and some flying and even putting out songs about flying or a song. More on that later. I do not want to hog up the airwaves with a lengthy message at this point. I just wanted to get this quick one in and before the next show or definitely before 600. So always thinking about you guys on the crew and the community. I'm listening intently. I just haven't been able to jump on live that much lately so hopefully i will soon and i'm definitely planning on it for 600 take good care everybody and we shall all see each other and chat soon looking forward to next year's meetup whenever that happens cheers y'all uh thank you david yeah we love you too um and uh, I've I've met up uh, in in several meetups over the years with uh, David Lieb, and uh, he's an uh, awesome musician and uh, and uh, teacher and uh, and friend. Uh, so thank you for the well wishes. And you're right, um, milestone. I just mentioned it earlier in the show. Thirty five years, uh, just a couple of days ago, coming up on real retirement here next week on the twenty sixth. And uh, he's right. There is a big milestone episode coming up and that's going to be next week sometime uh episode 600 so uh thanks for the well wishes sir um he said uh i had a much longer message ready to go but i'll save that for the new year 
Uh, he said, I'm sure things are getting extra busy over there in APG land, especially with the show 600 just around the corner. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. David Lieb in Rockland, Massachusetts. So that's always good to hear Thanks, from you, David. David. And uh, that's going to do it for our show today. And we're going to now do the wrap up, which is first to start by pointing you over to our website, airlinepilotguy.com where you'll find information about the crew and the community, community calendar, um, merchandise, and the APG library, and uh, more information about each of the individual plane tales uh, that the old pilot uh, produces, and um, so much more. So again, check out airlinepilotguy.com. We're also on the social meds and stuff. It's your turn now, to because you know we've 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 been picking I, up the slack for you the last. Yeah, we uh, covered for you so many times. <laughs> I'm I'm sure they were all excellent. Oh, uh, eye watering, like flawless, just beautiful. <laughs> well, I didn't say flawless. <laughs> have I? I have, of course I've been listening to them. Yeah, definitely. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. I believe you. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, in case you didn't know, we're on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Also on X, Twitter, whatever, at <laughs> uh, APG crew. Uh, individual handles are pinned to the top of that page. And then you can find Captain Nick's lovely show artwork for each show over on the Instagram. We're also APG crew. And speaking of slacking, it's definitely not me. I don't know why you would say such things. But uh, if you want to be a slacker, because that's actually a good thing. Hello, we'll tell you about it. I, I think I hear the shower. I think he's here. Yeah. Hang on. Hello. Slack? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. That's okay. Come on over. Tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks a lot, Hillel. Uh-oh. I wouldn't go in there for a while, Captain. Okay. Your water bill must be terrible. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, uh, Who's let's... got the howling hound? Come on, no, Ona. That's me. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Christmas <laughs> howl. Um, yeah, so before, before we go, we'd like to say thank you for this great year of APG. Thank you, everybody, for listening and supporting us, sending in feedback. Uh, all that stuff. And we do have one more show to go before the end of the year. I don't know if it's going to be published before 2024, but we're going to record it uh, before the year end here in 2023. And we just want to wish you all happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy Kwanzaa and uh, Boxing Day and all the, all the things, all the holidays. Festivus, I think, is uh, coming up here pretty Festivus quick as well. the 23rd. It's the holiday for the rest Mark of us. Calendars. Uh, we also want to thank, before we go, our producer, Liz. Thanks for all the 
great hard work you do before, during, and after the show. Yeah, brilliant. Well done, Liz. And uh, I want to personally thank all of my uh, hosts, uh, co-hosts, and uh, all the all the work and time that they put in uh, in uh, the show. And uh, I love you guys. I love all of our live audience members. I love all of you and our audience. And uh, we'll, uh, I guess, see you next week. And until then, wishing you all clear skies. Unlimited visibility and tailwinds. Take care. God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, buddy. See you next time. Happy holidays. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy